just imagine. If you had lived your entire life inside your house, and then... Everybody, welcome to episode number twenty-six of the Square Waves FM podcast. I am pleased as friggin' punch and other stuff too to have you along, uh, listening and stuff. Yeah, awkward. Uh, yeah, um, I'm your I'm your awkward host Brian, and uh, with me today is a, a special guest, my favorite person in the whole wide world. Hi. Hi, hi. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm awkward. Yeah. I'm, uh, confused. Nice to meet you, awkward. Yeah, same here. Hi, confused. <laughs> Actually, they call me Bianca. Well, I was on a previous show. Uh, what number was that again? I don't know. Whatever Sims was. 22. Oh, yeah. I was the guest on episode 22, and I'm back here on episode 26 to continue talking about The Sims. Hooray. Well, that's terrific. How are you doing today, Bianca? I'm doing very well. And, uh, you're still awkward, right? <laughs> yeah. Lifelong. I guarantee. <laughs> I'm so sick of my voice this week. I'm so sick of hearing my own voice. I have done so much sociable yammering all friggin' weekend long. It started off, uh, it started off at 8 a.m. I got up early to play uh, uh, video games Quiplash. with Quiplash with some friends from Australia and England. We had a great group for that. I, uh, to my astounding, astounding amazement, uh, Bianca actually woke up uh, at 8 o'clock as well, or just before, so we got to play together. So it was the two of us, Rizalka from Australia, uh, hi Rizalka, um, Darth Helmet from Australia, hello Darth Helmet. There was Richard Cobbett, Cobbett from England, and some other people that I had met before, but were very nice and very foul-mouthed, and so we all got along just swimmingly. Um, how would you like to uh, describe Quiplash for our audience? Quiplash, by the way, is a game by Jackbox Games, which was formerly... Uh, oh no, why can't I think of the name of them now? They were formerly Jellyvision from the USA, who made the You Don't Know Jack video game. So why don't you describe Quiplash for the audience? Quiplash is a uh, two-to-eight-player game where uh, you're given a prompt and you have to fill in the blank. It's either a question or it's a uh, leading sentence that leads you to fill in the blank. So essentially you might get a question like, um, oh, I don't know, your mother's coming for dinner. What the one thing you don't want her to see on your living room table? Or, um, now here's a Broadway musical. Bart, what's its hit song? <laughs> so basically, just silly stuff like that. And you get two questions to fill in. And another person will have two questions to fill in. So, so then the rest of the, and then everyone who is participating, who hasn't written an answer for, the, for your questions will pick the best answer. And so you're essentially going head-to-head -head with another player to figure out who's had the best quip or response to the question or leading sentence. 
Mm. And you can either pi, get partial points, or be completely annihilated and and in, and, and in essence quitlashed the audience. And if you're playing on uh, Twitch, for example, and there's more and there's not enough slots for people because there's only eight slots. The remaining people can join as the audience, and they too can vote on for their for their favorite quip, and so you can get audience favor even if you don't get player favor, which makes it all that more interesting in terms of points because you may lose points for not being sassy enough for your team, but the team player people you're playing with, but you'll get audience favor because they're probably in the mood for some crass bullshit that you want to spew out. I mean, not everyone's gonna vote for uh, the one thing that your mom, you don't want your mom to see. You know, she, you don't want your mom to see your dildo. Uh, your teammates not vote for it, but the audience will. Didn't you say your dad's listening to this episode? Uh, Hi, Dad. Hi. He is, but it's not. But it's a mom question. It's something you don't want my mom to see. Not like my dad hasn't seen it before when he's cleaning my room. Anyway. And at home. Anyway. <laughs> this has gotten very personal all of a sudden. So. Quiplash is, yeah, like Bianca says, it's um, essentially created to be a... Uh, party a, game. Yeah, like a local uh, local uh, competitive party game, kind of like a board game. I think you said two to eight players. I think it's actually three to eight players, because I remember the two of us couldn't play it. Oh, right, three to eight. Sorry. That's <laughs> right. Bad. So, um, yeah, the, you start off with everybody answering... Two questions, and you play on your on your mobile phone. So or tablets, or, or you tablet. can or you can use your computer and uh, that's a right. Web Anything browser. with a web browser, that's right. So um, you uh, the and the computer is used like as the TV sort of. It's like as the main display where the the host and the essential information is. So um, you can optionally play on Twitch or on another streaming service. We played on Google mm-hmm. Hangouts. Mm-hmm. Which was, the, I think, the first time I ever used Google Hangouts for video. It worked out pretty well. It was kind of choppy, but yeah, maybe that's Yeah, the video was choppy, but the latency for the actual questions and the sending of and the uh, and sending the information back was quite good. There was late, little latency there, but if you're playing mm-hmm. with, on Twitch TV, the there is no there is no the videos tend to not be choppy. They're quite smooth, but there can't but there is a 15 second latency between receiving. Between sending your response from your mobile device, tablet, or computer to the uh, hosts. Well, the latency is on Twitch. By default, there's 30 seconds of latency between what the person broadcasting sees and it arriving at the endpoints on people's web browsers. Um, they just Twitch just added a feature that reduces the 30 second latency to 15 seconds, which is a lot better. But that means that if the host is hosting Quiplash, and you have like a minute to answer a, uh, a question or two questions, by the time you know that the minute starts uh, in the audience, 15 seconds have already elapsed, so you have 45 seconds instead of a minute. Um, and if you're looking at your mobile phone, which connects to the Quiplash uh, Jackbox.tv centralized server, um, you'll, like on your phone, you'll have the opportunity to start answering the questions 15 seconds before you'll hear it on Twitch. Um, so at least you can participate if you tend to keep half an eye on your phone. But it was nice playing on Hangouts, I guess, because as Bianca said, the frame rate was really slow, um, possibly just because uh, it was Rizalka hosting from Australia, where I think maybe the internet isn't the best, or maybe it's the distance being traversed, us playing it in Toronto, I don't know. Um, 
But uh, the latency was like a second, which is a lot better than 15 seconds or so on Twitch. But on Twitch, it's like extremely high quality. It's like watching a high quality YouTube video or like watching a movie that you've already downloaded. Very high quality. So for a, a time-sensitive game where the essential information is on your phone in a web browser anyway, it was acceptable. It works out. Either way, it works out. And what's nice about the Jackbox uh, developers is that they actually added... Um, a streaming mode to the game that just adds another 10 or 15 seconds to answer all the questions. So that's kind of nice as well. So we played with eight, there were eight of us in total, which is the most that you can play with. There were actually a couple more, and they got to participate in the audience, and like Bianca said, if you're not answering questions and voting, if, um, if, you've, if there are no more player slots available, then the audience can observe and vote for their favorites as well. And when they vote... Like, uh, whatever anyone votes for scores points, and the person with the most points at the end wins. So it's a really fun game. Yeah, I like the audience because they add a sort of, they add the wild card. So you, so if you're playing with the same players repeatedly, you kind of get to know what their preferences are, and you're subject to their whims. But with the audience, you get the uh, wild card factor, which is uh, essentially they're the swing vote. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually, because the the audience votes count as much as the players' votes. At least until the very last round, where the players get three votes for the last question, and the audience just gets one. Mm -hmm. Each member of the audience gets one vote, not one vote for the entire audience. Right, one per. So it's a really funny game, especially when you're playing with a group like this, because they were all, not only were they nerds, and not only are they computer game nerds, but they're adventure game nerds. And so, you've read 19... Oh, oh Gesundheit. Excuse me. Wow. Me, sorry. <laughs> you've read 1984 by George Orwell, of course. Uh, no. No? No. You're the, well, you're the, you're the person, I see. Anyway. In <laughs> well, my school, my high school was stupid. They gave us everything else but that. I mean, they gave us Margaret, uh, oh, what was her stinking name? Not Margaret, I would, uh, another Margaret, her, the Stone Angel. Worst book ever. They could have given it 1984, but no. They gave us Lord of the Flies. Oh, I love that book. That's, that was a good book, though. That's probably my favorite book ever, actually. I love that book. And they gave us Catching a Ride, but nope, no 1984, no Grapes of Wrath. Well, anyway, <laughs> for those of you that have read 1984 by George Orwell, and you should remedy that. It's like 180 pages or something. It's a really quick read. Um, there's something called The Two-Minute Hate, where everyone in the city, you know, the... the, the the book is all about uh, brainwashing and uh, propaganda and stuff like that. And so everyone in the whole city has a television that they're not allowed to turn off. And every day they participate in something called the two-minute hate, where the, the, the corrupt state, the totalitarian state, forces everyone to look at a picture of this one bad guy, Emmanuel Goldstein. And they all have to sit there and think about how much they hate this guy. So this game of Quiplash was exactly like that, except instead of Emmanuel Goldstein, it was Cedric the Owl. Oh, that. Fucking, oh, and Mike Dawson, for some reason. Oh, yeah, Mike Dawson. I don't know who Mike Dawson is, but uh, Australians and the Brits really hate this guy. Yeah, and I kept seeing references to this this woman named Rita and multiple instances of uh, stabbing and death. <laughs> so. Oh, and a lot of uh, references to, uh, to the uh, rape scene in Phantasmagoria as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think I got the ball rolling on making fun of Jim Walls, <laughs> who was the uh, creator of Police Quest, and kind of an imposing guy. <laughs> so that was a really, really good time anyway. So I, that, do we have anything else to say about Quiplash? It's a great party game if you can convince uh, at least one person to have it and your friends to play it. 
Oh, that's worth that's worth mentioning, by the way, is that the only person who has to own this game is the person who is hosting the streaming session. Everybody else can play for free. Mm-hmm. And we loved it. In the, oh, no, I actually kickstarted it because I love that company to death. I played uh, Jelly Vision games since I was a teenager, I guess, since I was in high school when the first You Don't Know Jack came out. I got a demo for it, and it had, like... I think it had one or two or three questions or something, and I played it over and over because I wanted to hear all the funny stuff about all the wrong answers and stuff, and I, I bought You Don't Know Jack 1. Mm-hmm. And, and now you own every single You Don't Know Jack game, which, are fu- which is a good game to play together, and I'll actually comment more on that on a different day when we talk about the co-op games. Oh, okay, that's good. Although, is that a co-op game? It's more of a, a PvP game, I would argue, but we can, we can mention that anyway. We'll, we'll talk about multiplayer gaming. Chris and I already had, uh, I think, a few sessions about multiplayer gaming. Yeah, as a but it's not more like um, massively multiplayer. Yeah, we can talk about local multiplayer games. Mm-hmm. He and I mostly talked about network-based multiplayer games and MMOs. Yeah. But yeah, this one's basically, for those who... best way to sum up Quiplash is it's an uh, electronic board game that you can play over the internet if you really wanted to. Like, only one person has to own it. So they... Time was, you own a board game, your friends came over, and you all sat around the table, you played. This is the same thing, except we have mobile devices now. Yeah, I, I spoke about a similar game once called The Yog, which is it's Y-A-W-H-G, I think, which is made by a Torontonian guy named Damien Summers, really nice guy. I met him a few times when I uh, did work from Bento Miso, which was the collaborative workspace for video game makers. Um... He made this game, The Yog, which was, like, halfway between a board game and, like, a statistics-based RPG, I guess you would say, where every time you take a turn, um, some random event happens, and you get uh, one or more choices about what you want to do. And the choices are either based upon pure chance or based upon what points you've accumulated um, from the results of previous choices and events. And so... uh, that, in essence, is a local multiplayer game, very much like a board game. And a lot of people, when he released it on Steam, a lot of people were kind of incredulous, asking, why in this day and age would you create a local multiplayer game? Why does this have netcode of some sort? And for those who uh, are, are tapped into game development, often for indie, uh, for indie uh, teams, internet access or internet uh, connectivity is a really tough problem to solve. I guess there's no easy middleware plug-in or something or, uh, that they can just add to it, or perhaps they have to rethink a great portion of how uh, multiplayer works in order to incorporate uh, online multiplayer. So uh, a lot of indie games you'll find could benefit from online multiplayer but don't have it, and it seemed like that problem was kind of short-lived because of the prevalence and uh, immediate popularity of things like Twitch, and soon we're going to have uh, YouTube with its own game streaming competing service. So I kind of hope that this encourages more local-style board games, kind of like Jones in the Fast Lane. That's probably the first one that I can think of. I mean, there were games of Monopoly and stuff like that as well, and uh, that, that, that was probably the, the first of the uh, online, mm-hmm. uh, the first of the local board game-style games. But I hope that we uh, find more of these. Because board games are kind of fun. I'm not as, as much into board games as, especially as the people at Bento Miso were. Those were like pure game designers who love games in all of their forms. And they had a real love for card games and for board games, which were kind of media that uh, eluded me. 
but uh, I'd love to see more of that. I mean, nowadays we have Hearthstone and we have Magic and other collectible card games, which used to be purely in physical form, and now those are computerized. So uh, who knows what uh, streaming games might uh, introduce. Yep. So that's one reason, anyway. Uh, playing Quiplash with uh, Rizalka and Darth Helmet and Richard Cobbett and friends, that's one reason why I was totally sick of my voice is the minute I woke up yesterday. <laughs> the other reason is that I was very kindly invited to participate in the Backseat Designers podcast season finale for their second season. I don't know if their seasons have been uh, one a year or if they just kind of called it a season and then got started again after a short break. Um, Backseat Designers is a terrific podcast by Joel's and by Joel's Trolls and <laughs> Troll the Dungeon Trolls Play, Play Mart. I know that I asked him. I've 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 expressed doubt in the past of how I'm pronouncing either of his names, and I'm sure I'm flubbing them. So my apologies, my friend. Troll in the bathroom. Troll in the bathroom. <laughs> what Harry Potter reference? You don't remember that from Team Chamber of Secret? Troll oh, in the bathroom. No. Okay, Troll in the bathroom. I don't think he would object to being called that. <laughs> And uh, Frederick Olson. So those are, those are two musicians that I admire and two podcasters that I admire as well. Their show, Backseat Designers, is exclusively about adventure games and different aspects of design that they choose to debate. It's uh, not different very much from uh, Ben and Francisco's Blue Cup Tools podcast, but I guess that's uh, well, it's, they, it's got a lot of similarities. So, and I, I've been a big fan of Backseat Designers since the very first episodes where they were just going for 15 or 20 minutes or so on a phone call, and now uh, they're up to two hours or so. So yesterday, it was three hours long, and I think it was about half an hour until we got that going, too. So three and a half hours, plus the two hours we played Quiplash. <laughs> so I was real sick of my voice. But just to say a couple of words about the Backseat Designer season finale, which I will gladly put into the show notes, because... That was a great show. It was such an honor and so stimulating to be on a show with such intelligent people. And some of those intelligent people include uh, Serena Nelson, who is a real champion of adventure gaming, and I believe used to volunteer for Replay Games and several other uh, studios. Uh, and she's a, a great... Uh, she's a great... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, she, she, she does a great job of... Uh, of announcing and keeping the community aware of uh, Kickstarters for upcoming adventure games. We had Francisco Gonzalez, hello Francisco, who uh, has been on the show a couple of times and has the Blue Cup Tools podcast and is the game designer extraordinaire. Um, there was Jacob Janerka. Oh, I can't. I didn't write down the name of his uh, game that he's working on. He's from Australia. Trolls was extremely complimentary of his sense of humor and of his other games. I feel terrible for not writing down his uh, game name, but I'll talk to Trolls and be sure to stick that in the show notes, because just his enthusiasm uh, made me want to play his game. It sounded really surreal and silly. And Jacob was a cool guy, and he was a man of few words, at least uh, being an Australian. Um, it was uh, two or th I think it was between 2 and 4 a.m. or so that he participated in the podcast, so he was uh, kind of pussyfooting to make sure that he didn't wake anybody up with his voice, so uh, his, his uh, comments were short and sweet. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, man of the hour, the great uh, guest that uh, we had, uh, that Trolls and Fred had, was Josh Mandel, who is a writer and designer and voice actor, uh, formerly of Sierra Online, and uh, 
designer of Freddy Farkas and writer of uh, Space Quest Six. He did. He was the lead writer for Jones in the Fast Lane. So all of those little quippy, uh, snarky comments that you get whenever you do anything, those are predominantly Josh Mandel's writing. Um, and a big, uh, a big uh, gamer himself. So it was extremely stimulating and very, very illuminating and enjoyable to talk with these people. What a great time I had talking with them all. wasn't expecting it to go for three-plus hours, which it did, and it, it went on for a few minutes more after I had to excuse myself due to commitments and hunger and all of that kind of stuff. But I will very enthusiastically be putting a link to Backseat Designers Season Finale Season 2 on uh, the show notes. It was such a good time. Oh, and uh, thanks to uh, Bianca for... Coming in about halfway through with one of our budgies, Apollo. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that, but I couldn't resist the urge to bird bomb a video uh, podcast. <laughs> well, you kind of you kind of uh, come in and uh, keep me keep me company is a, probably a, a kind way to put it. Whenever <laughs> I'm doing any podcast, you kind of sneak into the room. You like mouth a few <laughs> words to me while I'm in the middle of saying something, as if my already simple brain could parse. What you're saying, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I understand. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and every now and then she'll bring a bird into the <laughs> into the room as well. And sometimes, rarely, the bird will be on her finger and uh, make a little appearance, and then she'll walk out. But usually, what happens is that the bird gets away. It flies all over the room. It lands in our clothes uh, uh, closet or something, and uh, makes a real nuisance of itself. So. There's like a 60-second period or so in this video podcast yesterday where all of a sudden I start looking up at the ceiling and all around. It's like I'm watching a zero-gravity tennis match or something. Well, actually, you're watching our little tennis ball bird yeah, flying around. She does look like a tennis ball, actually. She's kind of yellowish-green and real fuzzy. So uh, then uh, then Bianca catches Apollo and... Uh, I don't really catch her. I coax her gently onto my finger and I bring her over. So that the, I can bird bomb the show. <laughs> so she bird bombs the show. So she puts uh, Apollo on my finger, and uh, I move Apollo right in front of the <laughs> webcam, and so my face is pretty much completely replaced by this adorable, sweet little creature. And it because it's all humongous, it kind of looks like Jurassic Park. But I don't say a, a single word, and one by one, everyone on the podcast kind of starts snickering and laughing. Poor uh, Francisco Gonzalez is like mid sentence, pouring his heart out and saying his like eloquently well thought out uh, arguments about uh, game design. Uh, and I did a really good job of distracting him from his train of thought. So then. The uh, conversation kind of degenerated to bird. <laughs> yeah, so that was a really good time. It was the first time I'd been on a video podcast. I'm not a. I'm kind of camera shy in general, so I guess I'm kind of proud of myself for showing up on a camera for all that time. So I'll. Uh, I'll and give with you guys a shirt a on. Oh yes, I don't worry. I established very early on. I was probably one of the only. I was. I don't have to say probably. I was the, one of the only people who had a shirt on in, in that show. Fred and Trolls and Francisco. <laughs> And Josh were all shirtless. Francisco was wearing like a leopard print scarf. <laughs> it was oh, it was ever so flattering. So I, I felt kind of overdressed, but I established early that even though I was wearing a shirt, it was just a facade because I was pantsless and wearing the shirt only for the benefit of the video podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, listening to the podcast, I can assure you that I am wearing much less than that. But uh, right now, but uh, lucky for you, all you have to deal with is the sound of my voice. So pardon my vocal nudity. And uh, I will say that my wife is not naked enough. So 
Sorry, sorry on both counts, guys. Uh, so that's why I was sick as hell of my own damn voice. I, I spent like, jeez, I spent like five and a half hours talking to people yesterday, and now I gotta talk to you people, so like, screw you guys. <laughs> Give me a damn break, will ya? I'm not a machine. Okay, yes I am. <laughs> Alright, so that's that. Um, I, what else? I listened to an awesome podcast, uh, last weekend. No, last week, early last week. It was an episode of a podcast that I hadn't heard of before, but they had like 200 or something episodes called Podcast Unlocked. I believe it's a podcast exclusively about uh, the Xbox console, and I guess if, there's two, if they're 200 episodes in, I'm guessing that it must have started up around the Xbox 360 era. Um, it was a great podcast. Like, I, I have never owned an Xbox console. I don't really give two craps about Xbox myself, um, but on this podcast they had... Uh, the founder of Xbox, of the very first Xbox, which is a guy named Seamus Blackley. He's uh, a guy who used to work for Blue Sky Games, also known as Looking Glass. We've mentioned him a few times because he was integral to uh, Flight Unlimited and uh, played a big part in Ultima Underworld as well. Um, and uh, they also had Peter Moore, who uh, used to work for Electronic Arts and became the head of Xbox for the Xbox 360. And uh, he had a really tough job because he had to be the one to smooth over the whole Red Ring of Death debacle, which was like a one-plus billion dollar recall from Microsoft, and uh, it was up to Peter Moore to keep a positive, happy face on that whole situation, which he did a pretty good job of. He's a good guy. And then the last guy was Phil Spencer, who was the current head of Xbox uh, for the Xbox One console. So it was the first time that these three founders, or these three uh, department heads, had been on a podcast together. And they go on for about two hours or so. And they're extremely intelligent, very likable, very honest guys. They're, they're really enthusiastic about gaming. Um, and they played games on many more systems than just the Xbox. So it was not, by no means, was it uh, just a go Xbox, rah-rah team kind of a thing. So really well, uh, really well uh, worth your time to listen to. And I'll happily put that in the show notes as well. Um, there was one awesome story that they told. It was uh, Seamus Blackley who told this story that I thought I would just uh, repeat. I'll abbreviate it anyway. Um, Seamus talks about... This was before the Xbox One. He was one of the founders of uh, a service called the Microsoft Gaming Zone, or something like that, which is just uh, called The Zone. I believe this might have been uh, part of the backbone that powered the internet-enabled Hearts game that you could play in Windows Oh, yes, 90, back in 95. I think it was 95. I and I think it also allowed you to uh, do some stuff with Age of Empires at the time because they had a uh, network-enabled aspect of it as well. Well, did Age of Empires have, like, a matchmaking thing that you could play with random people? You, you, it had some sort of matchmaking. I didn't. I never used it because, well... I think Age of Empires might have just been... Local? Local or or internet-based, but you had to know the other person and connect with them, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, because I always played single-player against the computer. <laughs> well, The Zone had... They had uh, some little parlor games. They had, like, Backgammon and Solitaire and Bridge and stuff like that. And it was also kind of a Battle.net sort of a service for... The only one that I remember playing with that was enabled with The Zone was X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, which I guess was a LucasArts game, and it was a sequel to the TIE Fighter and to the X-Wing spaceship simulation games. Joe Mastrioni, hi Joe, he uh, uh, spoke about those games uh, on our uh, 
previous recent uh, episodes about Star Wars games, one of the two episodes that he joined us for on that topic. Um, so the awesome story that Seamus Blackley told was that uh, they, uh, as the zone was becoming more popular, they found that they needed to upgrade their servers because they think it was like literally running on some really lame PC, maybe just one PC that was in the corner of somebody's office, and they decided it, the time had come for them to formalize it, and they had to set up some rack mount Windows NT servers and uh, make those the backbone. So, um, as the end of his workday was approaching, he uh, got that started. He took the uh, main server offline, and there was some downtime between the server being offline and the uh, new ones coming back up. And suddenly he gets a, a very angry email, which I think was uh, one of the only emails that you could kind of expect to get from Bill Gates himself. Bill Gates emails Seamus Blackley saying, How come I'm not able to have my weekly online bridge game with Warren Buffett right now. <laughs> so that was a bit of an embarrassment for the guy because... First world problems. I know, huh? That's, that is an extremely uh, high-profile couple of guys that you do not want to be inconveniencing during their, <laughs> their, their private game time. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So you hear about really high-ranking influential people and a lot of stuff about Microsoft on this uh, podcast but a lot about games and a lot about what it's like to create a brand new console in an already saturated market and to maintain it and uh, what the brand meant to Microsoft. There's a lot of animosity between Microsoft and the Xbox team because the Xbox guys were kind of like a skunk works external but very highly funded uh, uh, branch of Microsoft. They're really resented by the other employees because for a long time on the Xbox One and I think... Uh, for the first half of the Xbox 360, they were losing money on every single console because they were working hard to establish themselves as a brand and uh, hoping that the profit would come later, which it has, and I think it's paid for itself by now. But uh, a lot of very honest and earnest talk about this sort of stuff. It was a terrific podcast, and I will highly recommend that uh, listeners of this show, I think that you'll enjoy it uh, as much as I did. Oh, so there was one very provocative quote, which I think was said by Peter Moore, in response to something that somebody else had said, and I wanted to run this one by you, Bianca, and tell you what you think. So, the quote was, there's no such thing as bad games, just bad price points. Mm. Now, that's a very provocative statement. Well, not just provocative, I would say it's subjective. Because, what do you define as a bad game? What do you define as a bad price point? Sure. I mean, you can have a great game, like Grand Theft Auto V. Great game, but $70? I was, I was astounded by the price. I thought it was a bad price, but, I want, but we wanted it, and we got it anyways. At this time, thanks to Green Man Gaming. Mm-hmm. But not exactly the kind of price you want to pay for a game when you've been paying $60 for previous games, and all of a sudden it's up to 70 But at the same time, then you got bad games, which you can get for like $10. And it's not a bad price point, but the game itself is bad. Let's see, what's a good bad game that I played? I don't know, I can't think of a bad game. But that's besides the point. Well, I can think of a game that really pissed you off. Uh, Ghostmaster? Ah, that was so horrible. The fucking tutorial. It's a, a good tutorial will give you one point and let you do something. This one just talked at you and didn't let you do anything. It just talked at you. For like 30 minutes. It would not do anything. 
A, a good tutorial. What, what was a good one? Let me see. I had a good tutorial recently. Um, where was it? What game was it in? Oh, yes. Wolfenstein New Order. They had uh, some new tutorial aspects, and so you would get just a little a hint. Just You would get a pop-up just as you were doing it. And the, you get a pop-up that would tell you what to do in terms of relevancy to what you were doing. So I had to slide under a door. It told me exactly how to slide under a door at that precise point. Oh, so contextual help inside the actual game. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the tutorial that goes blah, 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 and doesn't let you play the game and hold you captive until you've heard the wall of text. Yep. Okay. So any game, that, so basically any contextual help or uh, one that does say it's a tutorial but still lets you do something at the same time. Fahrenheit was had a tutorial that was explicitly a tutorial, but it still let you. But it told you how to do it, and then it told you to go ahead and try. And it kept. And if you didn't do it right, it said, "Okay, try again, and remember to do this, do X, Y, and Z in order to accomplish it." And it would let you try again until you understood how to do it. But you could skip the tutorial optionally if you wanted to. But I just appreciate that even though it called itself a tutorial, it still lets you do each of the exercises without having to listen to a wall of text. Okay, unlike Ghostmaster. Ugh, bad game, even though, what did I get it for? Like, I got it for five bucks, and it was not worth the five bucks. Maybe less. It might have been like two bucks. Stupid Steam, Steam sales. Fucking Steam sales. Everything looks so good when it's on Steam and on sale. So does that kind of prove the points then? The, the quote being, there's no such thing as a bad game, just a bad price point? Because Steam sales encourage you to buy things that you may not buy otherwise, right? True, but five dollars, like a couple of bucks for a game, is a good price. Although it was a bad game, not a bad price. Mm -hmm. I can argue. Um, I think the very inexpensive. What did we get? Uh, what did we get you, Wolfenstein: The New Order for? It was like four dollars or something. Twelve dollars. Right? Twelve dollars? Yeah. No, that was the that was the the new one. The original one was on sale for five bucks, and Green Man Gaming had this 20% off code, so four dollars. That was, that was, uh, Old Blood, that was for four dollars. Because I didn't get the original Wolfenstein, I got the Wolfenstein New Order and Wolfenstein oh, Old Blood. I bought you, so that's two different games. Yeah, but you didn't buy me the original. Sorry, I'm, I'm, oh, and of all the places for me to call the New Order the original. Um, I know there was a Wolfenstein, and then uh, there was a Wolfenstein 3D by Ed, and blah 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 bunch of ones intermediate. There's also one by Raven Software that was just called Wolfenstein. So, I'm sorry, by original I meant, this is by, is it by Machine Games? I forget Machine, who made. With, and it has, and it, uh, and it makes no secret that it is an id game. Well, I think, I don't think it had any parts in this new Wolfenstein series. They, they're just the ones who, they didn't even create the Wolfenstein series. I wish I could remember, oh, Anatoly, I know, knows the name of the guy who created the Wolfenstein series. It was originally like a third-person maze kind of a game. Um, it might have been for Apple. It was uh, in the early 80s is when the first Wolfenstein game came out. Um, so anyway, uh, you, you bought yourself The Old Blood, which is like the new so-called expand-alone first-person no, shooter game. No, I didn't game. buy it. Because of, because well, I got it for you. Yeah. But anyway, then I surprised you later on by getting you the, the, the other one as well, didn't I? No, no it was you the got other me the order, and then you got me old blood. You're right. Okay, We're anyway, right. my point is that the, the, the details aren't that important. My point is that oh, of not. Wolfenstein, the new order, I think, it's one, it's, 
it's the best first-person shooter, the best modern first-person shooter I've played for a long, long time. It is very, very good. If you have a powerful enough computer, the graphics are, like, unmatched. It's extremely beautiful graphics. Really good-looking people, really good-looking environments. Tons of detail. Um, the action is very good. The guns are really cool. The AI is fine. Um, everything feels impactful and it's nice and bloody. But the star of this game, I think, is the story and the characters, which are, like, unnecessarily well-told, unnecessarily round, interesting characters. The whole story is just unnecessarily good. It's very, very, very good story. As good as, like, any good movie, I would say. And because you can explore at your own pace, there's yeah. a lot of, like, newspaper clippings and letters and stuff that you can read as well. And it's pretty rare that I get into, like, the minutia of a story like that in a, in a game. Usually I don't really give a crap. The, the best example I can think of, I guess, for a game where I couldn't give two shits about all the little scraps of story and stuff was Deus Ex Human Revolution. <laughs> That game was so stupid, I thought, and I know Francisco loved it, and the vast majority of people loved it. It won a million awards. I thought it was the most idiotic thing ever. And the worst <laughs> of all was finding a scrap of a letter or something in a, somebody's desk drawer. And that scrap of the letter has paragraphs three through eight of this letter. Then you crawl through, you open up a, a vent in the wall, and you crawl through the vent, and you find a little crumpled up piece of paper inside the air duct. And it's... <laughs> It's paragraphs 9 through 13 of the same letter. And then you, like, go downstairs and you hack into somebody's email. And you look into their email. And attached to the email is, like, sentences 14 through 18 of what? that same letter. What? Huh? It's totally idiotic. So at least Wolfenstein... Maybe I'm exaggerating that a little bit, but honestly, not very much. I would find the same letter continued in five different rooms, which is so, so stupid. It'd be one thing if it was ripped up in a garbage can and you had to piece it together, or it was... In a couple of, or it was uh, in pieces in the in the desk drawer, like half on the desk, half in the desk drawer. Exactly. So Wolf, anyway, Wolfenstein does this the right way. They don't really have letters that continue on and on. There's a whole bunch of like individual little story artifacts yeah. that you'll find here and there, and they're all complete in their own way. Yeah. Or maybe you'll find newspaper clippings from different newspapers at different uh, times, mm -hmm. and they'll sort of continue. Uh, I won't call it a story, but they'll tell you a little bit more about the recent history of the world that you're in and yeah. trying to discover. So it just it gives you more of a feel for the universe you're in rather than being a story so that you don't miss the continuity if you happen to skip over a newspaper article. Right, but it's totally optional. If you don't care about this alternative history that's being told, then uh, then you can skip it and not miss too much. It's just kind of color commentary for those who are invested in the world. And if you do find letters, they're full and complete, and... They're either typed on, as if on a typewriter or handwritten with a uh, proper with a uh, with a uh, proper translation underneath, so you can actually read it. And the letters are really nice, and that they 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 feel like they've been written as one from one person to another, and not just slapped together for the sake of being a letter in a video game. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. So the reason I mention all this anyway, based on the the quotes that I mentioned, there's no such thing as bad games, just bad price points. This is a phenomenally, exceptionally good game. A very, very good game. I feel like I didn't pay enough for it. It being 12 bucks or whatever it was. It's such a great game. It was obviously a labor of love by a huge team. High budget. Um, it all pays off. It wasn't released too early. It was like not. It was released very well. It didn't have a lot of bugs or anything. I don't think I bought it when it was brand new. But uh, it's excellent. It's, an, it's the prime example of a fantastic game made by a large team, which is such a rare thing. Usually it's got 
sub it's got style but no substance. And this has both of them and like twice as much of both that you'll mm-hmm. find anywhere else. And the people are well designed, so they, they look realistic. They're beautiful graphics for the people, but the people are, themselves aren't necessarily beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That it's kind of ordinary, plain-looking people, but they're recognizable, and I like that. The people are not idealized. Maybe the women are a little bit, but not that's the too way much. It goes. I mean, they're not, not exactly they still look kind overflowing, of plain. busty with uh, sensualized curves and uh, booty to boot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's true enough. They're, they're a little. They're on the plain side anyway. So do play, do play uh, Wolfenstein: The New Order. The the expand alone. The Old Blood is less story and more action, which is still very satisfying. It's not as good as The New Order, but uh, it's not as good. New Order is good. I, I, I am going to continue playing it. I just got annoyed last night because I go into a room and I get shot at from four different directions and have a dog rip my throat out. <laughs> right. Play it, and it's a long game. And there's lots to see, and there's lots to be killed by, so play it at your own pace. But try to finish it, because it's got a great ending, too, I think. That's because by particularly mechanical dogs. Yeah. (laughs) Hens or hounds. (laughs) Um, So, uh, folks, that quote, once again, was, There's no such thing as bad games, just bad price points. If you've got an opinion on this quote, I'd love to hear it. SquareFM at demodulated.com Skip, skip, skip. I'm going to talk about some stuff on my list here uh, next week, because it's not timely. Um, I want to mention some corrections and comments by our listeners. So, Anatoly, hello, uh, Anatoly Das Nostalgic. Um, Always happy to have you listening to the show, and can't wait to have you on the show again. Um, He corrects uh, something that I had said about American McGee, saying American McGee was only a producer of Scrapland and not the developer, and that his actual participation in Scrapland and in Bad Day L.A. that were kind of suspect. Um, uh, thank you very much, Anatoly. I don't have the facts to uh, refute your claim, so I will take that as the truth. I thought that... I didn't know about Scrapland, except that it's called, like, American McGee Presents Scrapland. So I figured that his participation would be, like, in the Sid Meier kind of participation, where he's, like, the... the I don't know what you call it. Like, the, 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 the sun shining over the whole the whole production, um, or, like, the, 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 the godfather of the production, I don't know, whatever, like, um, it sounds like he might have given some, some, uh, design notes or something, or some of the, uh, original concept and not very much more. I thought that Bad Day LA was, he had more of a part in, but Anatoly says otherwise, so, uh, there you have it. Um, and... Uh, Trolls and Fred of the previously mentioned Backseat Designers podcast. Hi, Trolls and Fred. Uh, they expanded a little bit on the work of Chris Vrenna, because when we were talking about uh, American McGee, we also talked about uh, his game Alice, which is a soundtrack that Bianca and I love to listen to all the time. Great soundtrack. Really great soundtrack. It's moody, it's like percussive, it's like an exercise in counting, is kind of the way that I think about it, because it's got, it's very, I don't know, it's very TikTok-y. It's, uh, there's a lot of, like, measures of four beats in a bar that are emphasized, and that's kind of the, the focal point of the different music. So it's the sort of music that kind of puts you in a trance, and, uh, uh, as well as, as well as that, it's very moody and stylish. So that was made by a guy named Chris Vrenna, who I had mentioned, I guess correctly, that he used to be uh, a member of the band Nine Inch Nails with Trent Reznor, 
I think Trent Reznor is actually the only person who has stayed in Nine Inch Nails since uh, that band started. It's been he's had a bunch of different uh, supporting musicians. Um, Chris Verna, Charles and Fred tell me, also did the main theme for Doom Three, which is a really good piece of music. But that was a that was a piece of music that had really big shoes to fill. Um, because uh, Bobby Prince was the name of the guy who did the soundtracks for Doom 1 and Doom 2. And I've heard some criticism that he kind of took melodies from other existing heavy metal songs and just kind of redid them in general MIDI and uh, emphasized the melodies and, or replaced lyrics, uh, vocals with uh, more guitars, lead guitars. I don't listen to enough heavy metal to uh, say one way or the other whether that's true, but... Uh, Whatever the case, it's a very it's a the Doom One and Doom Two are some of my favorite soundtracks ever. They're really well programmed. They're uh, they've got great sounds. They've got great compositions. And uh, he uh, Bobby Prince uh, clearly added a lot of value, uh, personal unique value to those projects and made those games what they were. Uh, kind of gave them more of an identity. Um, so uh, Chris Verna had really big shoes to fill, as I said when he had to come up with a title song for Doom 3, which is this really evil, thrashy, kind of heavy metal guitar song. And I was very pleasantly surprised at what a good job he did of that. I think that song only plays at the main menu of the game, and then again at the very, very last waning seconds of the epilogue. But it's a super cool song. Oh, and that they also mentioned that uh, Chris Verna uh, played for Marilyn Manson, who I think was uh, discovered by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. And oddly, he also played for a band called Gnarls Barkley, which I think I only know one song of theirs, which is Crazy, and that was a very, very popular song. So, And it's very pop. So, although Chris Verna did all of this really dark, evil stuff between the Alice soundtrack and Doom 3 and Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails, that's all really dark, gothy, uh, like pessimistic, heady kind of music for him to have the acoustic range to also play for a pop group, a very popular pop group, that's uh, that says a lot about the guy's talent. So thank you, everybody, for your comments and for your corrections. We really do appreciate it. So we have a letter and a voicemail to play today. Uh, the letter is from Chris Olson, our, uh, the official pilot of uh, Square Waves FM Airlines. Hello, Chris. So, so happy to have you listening, and uh, it was... A real pleasure to have you on the show. I th with any luck, your schedule will permit you to join us again, if not in a week, then uh, very soon. Um, he sends an extremely awkwardly formatted letter to us, 140 characters at a time or so. He sent me just a, a series of tweets. And I apologize for not reading this last week, but uh, uh, I was disorganized and uh, it got away from me. So Chris says, Gentlemen, listening to episode 21 and happy to hear some Atari talk, we had several of the Atari 8-bit models growing up. Commodore and, Atomi Commodore and Atari discs are definitely not compatible. As far as sound goes, I'll respectfully disagree. And I apologize, I don't really remember what he's disagreeing with. He says, Atari had four voice, and see, uh, the Commodore 64 had the famous SID chip, but only three voice. That's interesting. Atari sound generated by the Pokey chip. And yes, all Atari 8-bits had cartridge slots. The Atari 800 had two, a left slot and a rarely ever used right slot. As far as graphics, Commodore 64 and Ataris were similar, though most would give the Commodore 64 the edge there. 
Atari was purchased by Warner Communications in the early 80s, which became Time Warner, and it didn't really work out too well. Jack Tramiel took over in the mid-80s, but Jack came from Commodore. Tramiel's legacy, legacies were the 130XE and the Atari ST line, but is often blamed for Atari's downfall. Notably, Jay Miner, one of the Atari 400 and 800 hardware engineers, left for Commodore and developed the Amiga. Many Atari folks consider the Amiga the Atari that should have been, as the machine does breed, does bleed Atari. Okay, I think I think maybe a, a tweet got lost there too. Um, then he goes on to say, Atari history is covered in a fantastic book series written by Kurt Vendel and Marty Goldberg called Atari Inc. Business is Fun. There's more info on that at ataribook.com. I'll put it in the show notes. Great stories, well done, awaiting the sequel called Atari Corp. Business is War. A famous Jack Tramiel soundbite from back in the day. He has Atari, he has Business is War, in quotes. Uh, thanks a lot, Chris. It was, uh, it was, uh, my, uh, my, uh, co-host, I'm not gonna call him previous co-host, cause he'll always be the co-host, Chris, who was, uh, our expert on Commodore and Atari. So, I unfortunately don't have very much to contribute to that conversation. I only played Commodore 64 at a friend's house, and, um, I can't remember using an Atari computer, really. Just the Commodore 64 and the Commodore 128. We played at an old family friend's house to play, uh, Donald Duck's Playground by Al, Al Lowe and a whole bunch of other stuff. I had other Al friends. Al Lowe and Donald Duck's Playground. But isn't he the guy who did Leisure Suit Larry? Correct. He is the so, guy who did Leisure Suit So Larry. he does these perverse games and he turns around and does Disney? Yeah. Seems like an odd contrast. He did another Disney game too. I think it was him that did The Black Cauldron, uh, which I think Ben Chandler is playing now. And Ben, hi Ben. We'd love to hear your opinions of... Black Cauldron, if not uh, in a letter to our show, then I hope that he'll uh, talk about it on his show, Blue Cup Tools, his show with uh, Francisco. Um, he also did an, a Super VGA uh, adventure game for Sierra called Torrens Passage, which I own and played all the way through, I think with a walkthrough, and don't remember barely at all, except that you have a purple dog that can transform into <laughs> stuff. Um, ben played it recently, and... I think, to put it politely, it was the biggest piece of fucking shit he ever farted on. <laughs> I think he said it a lot more rudely than that, even, so that's a bit of a shame. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and we have uh, a lengthy, what else, voicemail by our bestest of buddies, Trolls, who um, I believe talks a little bit about talks his favorite a soundtracks. A little, I know. <laughs> Touche. So, Mr. Trolls, please take it away. Hi Squares, it's me, the Space Quest Historian thingy. Um, hi, I'm Trolls. Um, you guys were talking a couple of episodes ago with Francisco Gonzalez about uh, cool game music, and I just had to chime in on this one because, hey, music, gotta love music. Um, my uh, three favorite game soundtracks of all time. I'm going to briefly run through them, play a little excerpt from each of them, and then uh, let you uh, tell me what a loser I am. Um, the first and foremost, and I have to, you know, really get on my knees and pray to whatever deity I, you know, pops into my mind at, at whatever time I do that, um, and thank 
whoever that is, for uh, bringing this soundtrack into the world. And that is uh, Last Ninja 2 by System 3 for the Commodore 64, uh, composed and performed by a dude named Matt Gray, who, uh, a little known fact, later uh, became a uh, part of a writing team that went on to create Shares Believe, uh, which we're not going to hold against him because, uh, well, we, we can hold it slightly against him, but uh, the soundtrack to Last Ninja 2 is so phenomenal. Uh, even though it's on, you know, the Commodore 64, it's got... Uh, um, very limited, uh, you know, channels to play. Uh, I think it only has, I think it only has four channels, and uh, one of which is a noise channel. Uh, but still, I have never heard an eight-bit machine rock out like this. Um, and the uh, the tiny little bit I'm going to play is from the loading screen to uh, level two, uh, which sounds like this. Fucking God, did you hear that saw wave? I am complete, because uh, my uh, my two favorite instruments in the world uh, are the uh, electric guitar, uh, like the uh, distorted guitar, and uh, a big, fat, old, moogie kind of saw wave. And I desperately love that sound. And so for this guy to play two octaves on the saw wave and just, it just pounds into your head. Even though it's in mono, I still listen to this thing with headphones as I'm waiting, you know, on the train and such. I fucking love the soundtrack so, so much. And the cool thing about Last Ninja 2 is that it's not just, you know, little 30 second uh, loops of songs. It's actually a complete soundtrack album. Uh, most of the songs are uh, three to four minutes in length. And there's one track that's uh, actually seven and a half minutes uh, in length. And it's just phenomenal from start to finish. You can listen to it as an album. Like, you can put it on from start to finish, and it's like listening to an album. So, I've, so Matt Gray uh, is uh, is fantastic. Also, he apparently kickstarted a re-recording of uh, the Last Ninja 2 soundtrack, um, which he's only giving out to backers who are willing to pay an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, so I can't actually afford uh, the re-recording, but uh, I'm hoping someone... Well, never mind. Uh, let's uh, move on to number two. My second favorite soundtrack in all the world is um, Lee Jackson's soundtrack for Rise of the Triad. Now, I know what you're going to say, and I don't care. I love the mix of... Um uh, what is it like a drum core uh, mixed with the uh, synthesizers mixed with uh, you know completely frantic uh, synthesizer bass and uh, and excellent uh, drumming I've never heard anyone program drums uh, on general MIDI as good as Lee Jackson did and 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 one thing I was really really disheartened by with the Rise of the Triad remake that came out was that they put this guy in charge of re-recording the music apparently under Lee Jackson's tutelage no less and he completely fucked it up it was it was so 
terrible. I mean, he he veered off into this sort of I'm Van Halen, although not as good, kind of wanky guitar solo thing. And apparently the dude's never even been near a real drum kit because the drums were all over the place. They were it was it was the most terrible re-recording of a soundtrack I've ever listened to. But uh, in retrospect, it only made me appreciate the original even more. So I'm going to play you a small little excerpt from my favorite of the soundtrack, uh, and it's hard to pick one, but I'm going to play a little excerpt from um, the track Havana Smooth. Good. Uh, okay. The last one I want to single out is because um, you guys were talking about Mega Man and you were talking about Mega Man 2. And I have friends, uh, retro gaming friends, who will uh, highlight Mega Man 2 as having the best soundtrack of the Mega Man series. And uh, to be honest, never actually played a lot of Mega Man 2 or 1 or 4 or 5 or 6 or however many they are. But one I did play to an awful extent is Mega Man 3 and that soundtrack will be forever buried deep within my skull. I will, you know, wake up and whistle the main tune. Um, as far as, uh, you know, NES soundtracks goes, this is definitely right up there with the best of them. Um, so, uh, so I'm just going to play a little bit of the main tune uh, just to get you guys in the mood and uh, hopefully convince some people uh, that uh, Mega Man 3 ha has the superior soundtrack. No, wait, no, wait, I'm not going to play the main theme. No, I'm not going to do that. I am going to play the um, my absolutely favorite absolutely favorite, my absolute favorite uh, piece from Mega Man 3, which is one of the Wily Castle uh, themes, which occur very, very late in the game. And it's got this really, really sweet melody. Um, so I'm going to play that instead. So here. And uh, just to cap things off, uh, just to, uh, you know, stroke my own ego and such, um, I'm just going to play a little tiny bit, uh, don't worry, not going to get too far into it, little tiny bit of uh, what happens when I'm home alone and I sit down and uh, maybe I've had a beer or two and uh, I decide to pull out the guitar and uh, play along with what I uh, consider to be completely impossible to play um, piece of music which was uh, the theme that you've just heard uh, so I'm just gonna uh, play a little tiny snippet of that and uh, then I'll let you go here you go
Right, well, uh, thank you, ladies and germs, and anyone in between. I am so very uh, grateful to uh, be able to uh, espouse my idiocy on your podcast. Uh, of course, I love you guys, uh, Brian, and uh, best thoughts to Chris, whom I love like a brother, even though I've never met him. And um, yeah, keep up the fucking good work. Um, see you later, squares. Sarah, thanks, trolls, amongst all other things, for putting fucking chair in my in my head. So I owe you one for that, uh, chump. Ugh. He really loves the sound of his own voice, doesn't he? Of course he does. But lucky for him, so does everybody else. Trolls kind of gets a pass. Every every podcast that you listen to where he's called in, he's like a a, a percentage of that podcast. So uh, he, he, for some reason, well, for the reason being that he's actually an intelligent guy who has things to say and examples to give of his arguments, so much appreciated. Real pleasure to hear from you, Trolls. Although that first song you played kind of made it sound like I was stuck in a sonic tube at the airport where they're scanning you for explosives. <laughs> that first song uh, that was on the Commodore, the last Ninja 2 on the uh, Commodore 64 SID chip, that did have an awesome sound wave. That was really kind of buzz-saw-y. I love the sound of that. Uh, and I love the uh, the squishy, splashy um, snare drum on the SID as well on that noise channel. That's a really special sound. That's a fun sound chip uh, with a, a pretty interesting kind of tinny range. It sounds a little bit like the Genesis, a.k.a. Mega Drive to me, but uh, the SID chip got a lot of love. Why did you just say a.k.a. Mega Drive and not Genesis? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. What do you think it is? Uh, wasn't Mega Drive with CDs? Because Genesis was with cartridges. Uh, the Sega CD was the name of the CD add-on for that console, but yeah, the Genesis, the, it was called the Mega Drive in Japan, Europe, and Australia, and I believe just in the USA and Canada it was called the Genesis, and I don't know about South America. Yeah, but I know we did, well, the one I, I was unlucky, I, although I had the Genesis, I didn't have the uh, CD add-on. Yeah, I don't know if you were missing out. It was kind of a weird add-on to that console, because that console could only do, like, eight colors or something like that, or maybe 16 colors. So 16 when they... colors. The okay. one I had could do 16 colors, and they were be- and they were just beautiful. Or at least it wasn't Sonic. Because then, the, then there was F-15, which my uh, stepfather bought to play on my console. I never played it. Played it for, like, ten minutes once. I actually got further than he did, so I was bored one day and started trying oh, yeah, that game. You showed me that game. It's like a flight simulator with a two-button joystick. So yeah. there's so many controls with so few ways to invoke them. Yeah. It was interesting. And it's a real flight simulator on the Genesis. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, um, for the cartoony kind of sprite-based games that, uh, that artists made... Yeah, Sonic was beautiful. The, for the games where artists drew the uh, graphics meticulously, pixel by pixel, those look beautiful. But for the Sega CD, which was a platform that tried to take advantage of like full-motion video and stuff like that, imagine watching a TV show in 16 colors. Instead of 16 million colors. No. It looked very kind of posterized and peculiar and very pixelated and kind of, uh, like, dithered. So it, it was very unpleasant to look at. Plus, um, 
Was it? It might have been Chris who mentioned the Sega CD version of 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 of, of uh, Willie Beamish by Dynamics, which is a uh, a Sierra adventure game, a Sierra published adventure game about a little boy. Um, very cartoony. Oh yeah. Don't you start off the game in detention because you brought a frog to school and That's it got, it exactly. out, got up to, like the teacher's hosiery or something? Good memory. I don't remember the hosiery part, but you have a bit. I don't know. Something about a skirt or going up you or somehow right. uh, bothering the teacher. <laughs> yes, that's exactly the game. So that was a really cool CD-ROM game for, and uh, I believe it was on Floppy as well, but on CD-ROM it was, it had a whole voice acted sound uh, soundtrack and all of that. Sega CD had that as well, although because of the storage limitations, they had to cut some parts out. But the worst part of the Sega CD version was that it was just the way that they put the sound files on the CD itself, and the Sega CD had a really slow tracking laser. So it would say one sentence, then there would be a pause of like five seconds while the laser moved elsewhere to read the next thing, and then it would say the next sentence, and so there were these excruciating pauses between every phrase said. That sounded annoying. Um, so, how do we get on this topic? I don't know. Um, by the way, because, uh, Trolls mentioned Mega Man 3, and I would, I don't know if I have, a, I haven't listened to the Mega Man soundtracks enough for this, for the regular NES, Nintendo Entertainment System. I don't really have a favorite soundtrack. It might be two or three. Um, but I think, like, the first six are all kind of equally very, very good. Extremely good examples of, like, chiptune-style rock music. Really, really great, exciting compositions that's complement the frenetic pace of the gameplay very well. Um, because he mentioned Mega Man, it reminded me, just in the nick of time, that Mega Man is a great series to watch speedrunners play. I've spoken about speedrunners and streaming and live live speedrunners a few times over the recent weeks. And um, just th today, this afternoon, I believe, is the beginning of the Summer Games Done Quick, which is the Awesome Games Done Quick charity fundraising series where uh, amazing uh, specialists in video games, speedrunners from all over the world, congregate in one uh, conference center or a hotel or something, and they uh, put on like an endless show of one after the other, speedrunning and like flawlessly playing and making world records times on all these extremely difficult video games. It's really, really fun to watch. There are PC games, there are console games, mostly console games, but last year they did, like, Doom and Blood, and uh, they play them on their hardest difficulties, and they show all these exploits and stuff that you've never seen before. Ben put it very, very well um, when he said that playing a game that you're very familiar with eventually feels like a performance, like uh, a piece of music that you practiced over and over, and you know it so well that you can kind of take little liberties and do little flourishes that you wouldn't do otherwise, but you can afford to because you're so very good at it. So that's kind of what it's like watching this stuff. So I'll put it in the show notes, but the URL for uh, that uh, event is gamesdonequick.com. And I think you guys will really like that. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Trolls. We love your voicemails. We love everybody's voicemails. Um, and, and thank you, Chris, as well, for your very strangely, uh, strangely <laughs> transmitted 140 character at a time uh, letter about uh, Atari and Commodore 64 and the... the distinctions between them. Sorry, I didn't read that very well, but uh, I, I think that one or two tweets may have gotten lost or something. Um, it, it, we'll, we'll, we love your letters any way that you send them, but if there's any way to send your emails via email, your letters via email, it's probably easiest for me to read something kind of contiguous. Um, 
Do you, sorry, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, Bianca, but do you have any favorite soundtracks from video games? Let's see. Well, I obviously love the Tetris, the original Tetris one. Oh, the um, Game Boy one, you mean? Yeah, I had the uh, Type B news, uh, tune as my ringtone for so long. Mm-hmm. It became, it, except the problem was, I only have a few people who call me, and... It became kind of a it kind of became a point where it was guess who's calling me to make Tetris go off. Yeah, that's the problem with having a favorite piece of music and making it your ringtone. I guess is you start to dread the sound of your favorite song. <laughs> yeah. So besides that, um, I've also quite enjoyed the soundtracks from Super Mario Land Two Six Coins. Oh yeah, we played no, we played number one the other day. Uh, yeah, but I played Super Mario Land Two. I actually owned it. Mm-hmm. Really good soundtrack. It's really it sounds really sounds like it's a eight bit I think, but it's good eight bit sounding. Yeah, the original Game Boy had kind of a charming sound chip. I think it did two or three sounds plus a noise channel, um, and it kind of I don't know it uh, it's. I don't know. Can you think of a good word to describe how the Game Boy sounds the music? Um, it sounds, it's, it's, uh, evoking of childhood memories. <laughs> well, that's one way to put it. That it does. Yeah. And I actually had the original Game Boy and the Game Boy Pocket, which was the, uh, really slim, sexy version of the Game Boy Ooh. that came up just before the color. Because what happened was I, my original Game Boy died on, an, on a four-hour, just after the end of a four-hour flight from Ottawa to Los Angeles during oh, March least, break. At least it was at the end of the flight. Yeah. So, using whatever money I had, I bought with at U.S. price the uh, Game Boy Pocket. So I was but because the uh, Canadian dollar was uh, well below par in the '90s. I paid more than I should have, but it was totally worth it. It was my birthday money. I saved it. I was desperate. So I got the sleek little Game Boy Pocket, and it actually sounded a lot better than the original. Oh, really? Yeah, they had improved the, the sound chip quality, so it uh, so it sounded more like uh, it sounded it sounded less tinny than the original. It's, yeah, Nintendo often does that. They'll they'll release subsequent versions of the same hardware, and it will have little improvements. I guess all the console manufacturers do that, but Nintendo is kind of renowned for having such high-quality hardware in general. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I still have my Game Boy Pocket, and so then there was that. There was also Yoshi's Cookie, which was another Tetris type of game, which had a really nice soundtrack. Oh, that came out, I think, for Game Boy and NES. Which one did you have? Game Boy. Okay. I think I remember emulating that game and not knowing how to play it, and the adorable cookies and dinosaurs weren't enough to keep me from raising my middle finger at the screen. Probably because I was kicking your butt at it. Oh, we played that friggin' thing co- or multiplayer once, didn't we? You yeah. murdered me? Uh-huh. I think I tried it years before that as well, though, and didn't know what the hell to do. Oh, I, I was so good at it, because I was always good at Tetris-style games. Let's see, what other soundtracks? Well, moving actually on to PC, I, uh, I quite liked the soundtracks for Fahrenheit. Not the sun stuff, but the actual background music. Yeah, it did have some nice... It does have some nice music, but there's, uh... The fence-climbing music, which makes you want to <laughs> shit your pants. It just feels like you're going to run out of time if you don't make it to the top. But I love that sound. But that song, 
it's good if you're an audio sir because of its uh the music current right it makes it a great, and the thing is it's straight downhill but it's not a fast enough downhill so you can actually pick up your uh, so you can actually do it without killing yourself and I guess you kind of have to hand it to the composer uh, who's like you know the the, the uh, esteemed mr. David Cage goes up to his composer and he's like I need music. I need music for failing to climb a fence over and over for 12 minutes. What do you got for me? <laughs> and, now, and, now, and, and I need that same song to uh, play when you're pulling uh, your brother's friends out of a burning building. Oh, <laughs> and they're all hiding because they're a bunch of fucking little cunt faces. Oh, gee, I know. Gee, we're, we're going to burn to death. Let's play hide-and-go-seek and be oblivious. <laughs> this is not the first time we've discussed this scene on the podcast, by the way. This is a, a universally despised scene in an otherwise fun but completely idiotic game. Mm-hmm. Okay, then, of course, there's Katamari. Did I mention Katamari Damacy? I better have, because that has such a zany, awesome soundtrack. Oh, I love the soundtrack. That I, I bought a PlayStation 2... Just for this game. Specifically to play Katamari Damacy, specifically because I love the soundtrack so much. That's how much I love that soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's really crazy. I'm sure I talked about this, but it has, like, like Las Vegas crooner kind of songs. It has, like, house and techno songs. It has J-pop and, like, Japanese rap. It has a whole bunch, I don't know. It it has, like, techno ambient kind of songs. It has a terrific, diverse variety, and all the so- uh, almost all the songs don't really take themselves too seriously. Mm. It's very zany. Yeah. Speaking of Katamari, I because I had been uh, watching because my husband has it installed on his computer using an emulator. We had been playing it about a year ago, around the same time we had gone out for dinner at a Chinese restaurant, and I had some green tea. It resulted in the combination of this game and green tea that I had a very psychedelic nightmare. Involving the co- involving rainbow roads, walking through bedrooms and seeing Katamari planets everywhere, and having trying to reach out and touch them and take photographs. That's some green tea. Yeah, and it's all because of this one because of Katamari and its extremely bright, vibrant colors. Because everything is it's not realistic. It's not cartoon. It doesn't look cartoony. It doesn't look realistic. It's like some sort of bizarre cubism. Meets surreal with a touch of modernism. Yeah, it's kind of like video gamey and kind of like origami, I guess I might say. It's sort of paper crafty. Well, it is, especially considering there is a whole level where you pick up fucking paper cranes. Oh, I know. That's right. You have to pick up, what, a thousand paper cranes? Because if in Japan, the superstition is that if you give someone a thousand paper cranes while they're in the hospital, that they'll get better for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. I'm sure I've mangled that. It's a it's a it's a pretty big number because I've seen that reference in a couple in a few of the animes I've watched. Just this one scene: this girl is sitting in the uh, waiting room for her boyfriend and his friend to come out, and she's been making these paper cranes for uh, the boy uh, for the uh, friend, his father, who has gone in for heart surgery, and she worries that she hasn't made enough. Hmm. That's kind of a charming Mm-mm. superstition. Yeah, but it just comes out so nicely, and it's just. Because the character is such a nice, thoughtful young uh, person that this is it's actually quite a charming scene. Mm-hmm. Let's see, other soundtracks. Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney. How could I not have mentioned Phoenix Wright? That is a terrific soundtrack. I'm going to look up who... You talk, I'm going to look up who composed it. 
Okay, so it's got specific themes that tend to uh, transcend the various games, but they're not identical. There's like slight variations that are noticeable, so you recognize the song when you hear it, but you know that it's not the same song in every game. Oh, thanks to Francisco and to Trolls, by the way, who gave me the word for that. It's called a leitmotif. L-E-I-T. Mm-hmm. Leitmotif. Okay. Yeah, I, I was so happy to learn. And I, I credited I, I credited uh, Trolls for telling me that on Twitter, and then Francisco reminded me what a dope I am that he had actually mentioned it verbally on the podcast. So thank you, first Francisco, then Trolls. And you can thank me for telling you all that. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's obvious that the, 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 that, uh, the, the, the themes are quite consistent, the theme songs. Because of this late motif uh, method, but at the same time, there was a lot of different songs in the um, series as well. But the songs that are the, the, the theme songs that are the most consistent are for cross examination, the lobbies, and uh, the and uh, testimonies. Basically, the courtroom music tend to uh, be uh, quite similar across all games. But with the slight nuances that uh, suit the game's theme itself, and so you tend to recognize those nuances as uh, being part of uh, either Ace Attorney, Justice for All, Trials and Tribulations, and then in the uh, Apollo Justice and uh, Edgeworth ones, the themes are much different, but they still have the underlying uh, similarities. But overall, it's just great music. We've uh, and then there's different renditions of it. Like there's even jazz versions of it, which we have as well. Yeah, those are really nice. I think I have a piano one as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I I do have the composers here. The the first Phoenix Wright game came out for the Game Boy Advance only in Japan, and the composer was someone named Masakazu Sugimori. Um, for the Nintendo DS version, which came out afterwards, and that was the first one released uh, worldwide, it was by a composer named Naoto Tanaka. I think that might be a woman. Apologies, Tanaka, if uh, that is incorrect. But I, I think the soundtracks were reinterpreted and then composed in the later games by mm-hmm. a woman. They're such, such good, stylish, moody... Soundtracks it's and accurately reflect what's going what's going on. So the cross examination music is tense and fast, especially once you're uh, presenting evidence, and then it just it just speeds. And the music speeds up. That's exactly what I was about to say. So it's the same song, but they but it but the uh, tempo is sped up to suit the the uh, urgency of the mood. You have to get this evidence in, and it's gonna and it's gonna damn the uh, witness's testimony. Mm-hmm. But you you hear the wrong piece of evidence, you either get whipped, mocked, or scolded. Take right. your pick, right. or maybe a coffee or a nice hot cup of coffee to the head. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Any others? Um. Let's see. Well, World of Warcraft has a great soundtrack. I can't remember whether I mentioned World of Warcraft. It was on my list, but I think I might have run out of time before I. Talked about it? What would you say about that soundtrack? It's, for the most part, it sounds like most the most fantasy music. I mean, it sounds like Guild Wars. Basically, 
Every time I hear it, I go, who wrote this, Jeremy Sauls? Because it all sounds the damn same. Except, the music that does that tend to stand out the most are the main themes and the, uh, and the, and the uh, capital city music. It's Stormwind. You know it right away when you hear it. And I would say my favorite theme of all from that one is the opening theme for Wrath of the Lich King. It's just so ominous, and you can just feel the cold from the music. Of course, it doesn't help that you have Cinder Gosa flying at you when, you, when you're watching a loading screen. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Beside that, Agent Oh, oh I, well, that's a great game. I, I just want to say a quick word about World of Warcraft, which is... I have... I found uh, some software... I think it's called MPQ Explorer, something like that. It lets you uh, extract the game assets, the assets from the files. So I have all of the music, all of the soundtrack ripped out of the version that I own. And the soundtrack right now is something like something like 49 and a half hours of music. It's all original music. They're all like individual songs. There are some like uh, motifs and some uh, uh, some similarities between a few songs. Like there might be the same area in different situations. But for the most part, it is totally original, unique music throughout. I haven't ripped the soundtrack in the last couple of patches or so. It's probably close to 60 hours of music or something. Yeah. Now. It's so good. The uh, Warlords of Draenor soundtrack is pretty nice. At least Shadow Moon Valley is. Not crazy about the garrison music, which is why I'm thankful for the uh, the little uh, music player so you can not go track down all the uh, music files. Oh, yeah, there's a music box and you can find the little yeah. cartridges or whatever yeah, around the world. Invis- Invincible. Oh, yeah, I got that too, didn't I? That's uh, the Lich King's yeah. theme. It's not the mount, unfortunately. I'm still trying to get the mount. Me too. I should see. I think I have, I have like one day left on my unsubscribed subscription now. Maybe I'll I'll see if I have it. I'll do uh, I'll do that raid today and see if I can get that mount. Yeah, I should try as well. And then screw that game. I'm gonna unsubscribe for ten minutes until I resubscribe. I'm sure. Like yeah, I because do. you watch me playing, you realize how much fun it is, and then you get annoyed because you resubscribe. That's right. And and then moving on from that, there was Age of Conan, which had quite nice music, and un- unlike some fantasy, most fantasy music, this. Was it, was, I found this soundtrack quite distinctive for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Age of Conan, I guess the, the music uh, reflects the settings very well. This is a game that I don't think I had the time to talk about when we were discussing multiplayer, ma- uh, massively multiplayer games. But it's like very Nordic style music for the most part. The settings are very Nordic. There's, they're like mountainous and forests. Um, in rivers and streams, kind of similar to Skyrim, I guess, in the scenery, I would say. Mm-hmm. The, um, it would be uh, quite southern Skyrim, because not that much friggin' snow. Skyrim <laughs> is like 90% snow, 10% forest. There are a lot of zones that were like this, that were predominantly mountainous and snow and stuff in Age of Conan, too. But yeah, I guess, but not that many, but not 90% of them. I guess. But um, Age of Conan had some beautiful vocal stuff, like... Uh, Kind of operatic female vocalists stuff. Very, very pretty. Really powerful, like, heartfelt singing. Singing from the bottom of your butt kind of music. <laughs> really, really, really emotional vocalist. It's beautiful. Alright, you got one more maybe and then we'll move on? Uh, I can't really think Is of any soundtracks except for The Sims. That had great music. It did. I think we might have talked about that. Oh yeah, we did talk about that. I actually used one of The Sims songs at the end of the... Mm-hmm. episode. It has such a range. It what, has a, such a range. What would you say about it? That I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily going to talk about the uh, ch- the uh, music you play on stereo, but I like 
but if you're playing, if you leave the sound enabled, I like the music for the uh, opening theme. It's it's always they use. It's, I found they use the same one, but they use the motif on it, where it's where you can tell it's a slightly different game every time, and the theme is uh, updated to, to use better uh, to use better instruments and have an enhanced sound quality. So it's, so it doesn't sound like it didn't Sims two, but it still has the same feeling. I really like actually, yeah, the the theme song, like the the main menu slash loading music, mm-hmm. how it's different with each expansion pack, and it has the very it's always the same song, but you like you say with different instruments or something. I think my favorite one for, I don't remember if it was Sims two or Sims three. It was Sims three. There's one that's like with pianos and harps and no percussion, and it's really really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it starts off like when you buy the first game, the the base game. It's like all bombastic and. Uh, like a no holds barred in your face kind of exciting music, and to hear that same theme with really gentle instruments was really nice. All right, well, before we go to what we played this week, I just wanted to quickly mention that based on the since we're talking about music, um, I wanted to listen to a soundtrack that didn't resonate with me somehow, but is very, very beloved, and I've been like, asked whether I have all my marbles when I said that I don't really like the soundtrack that much. Uh, that soundtrack is the soundtrack for Tyrion by Alexander Brandon. Um, he, I think he's a guy that we might have mentioned for some other soundtrack, perhaps, uh, when uh, Francisco and I were talking about soundtracks. But um, I'm still sort of lukewarm about the Tyrion soundtrack. It's got some good compositions. It's got some good instruments. It sounds... It's a mod music soundtrack, but it kind of sounds like a frequency-modulated MIDI soundtrack, just with the instruments that are selected. Um, and it does all this kind of cool stuff with, like, uh, when the, a note is sustained, then it adds a little bit of vibrato, so it's kind of a 1970s synthesizer sort of a feel to it. Uh, what I really did like about the soundtrack was that there are a lot of songs that have no percussion whatsoever, and they would they feel like the percussion's coming any minute now, but it just never comes. And that's kind of a clever, different thing to do. But what I don't like about the soundtrack still, I and this might be the only thing I don't like the sound about the soundtrack, but it's enough, is that it sort of has a weird acoustic range. It's like very middly, very oh, there's a lot of middle end and not enough high end, and a little bit of low end, but not enough low end, low end, but mostly not enough high end. And I think maybe that has to do with the fact that it's just like low quality low uh, bitrate instruments, because that's all that you could really work with at the time, at that early age. But I think that, like, from an audio engineering standpoint, maybe that would have made the soundtrack more exciting and impactful for me, um, because I feel like a lot is missing, and you kind of lose some of the details, some of the intricacies of the composition, because you just can't hear the sounds, you just can't hear the instruments very well. And more so when you're playing the game with all of this shooting and exploding going on, you really lose the music a lot. Uh, so I then listened to, because I was in the mood for kind of space shooty kind of music, I then listened again to the soundtrack to FTL, Faster Than Light, by Ben Prunty. That is a gorgeous soundtrack, and I love that to pieces. And that's a modern soundtrack, so it has really good, uh, really good sound quality. Uh, and nice instruments and all, but the it's a little bit more restrained, and does it, it kind of says more with by doing less. Very very pretty soundtrack. I will certainly put a, a link to this in the show notes. 
The soundtrack is 90 minutes long, and you can buy it on Bandcamp for five bucks. It's so worth it. I, I think, I'll, I'll double check, but I think that perhaps if you own the game, uh, it might come with MP3 or AUG versions of the music as well, so it might be a better deal to just buy the game and pull the soundtrack out, because that's a great game. That's a game I've been trying to get you to play, Bianca. FDL. It's kind of like The Binding of Isaac meets uh, Star Trek. It's a game where you are uh, you have your own spaceship and your own crew, and you pick up new crew members, and sometimes they die, and you have to just make do with these really difficult situations with this crew that you can't always rely on to be skilled at the things that you need them to do. And that sounds really frustrating, and death is inevitable. I've never finished it. I think I played it for five or six hours or so, and I, you can't, I can't finish it, even on easy. But there's such a good variety of things that happen, uh, and it feels like it's your fault when things go wrong. Sometimes. Actually, that's not true. Sometimes an unfortunate series of events will kind of compound upon each other, and you're fucked. But I think you should try that game as a Star Trek fan. I'll contemplate it. Yeah, you contemplate <laughs> So while you're contemplating that, why don't you tell us what you've been playing uh, this week? Well, this week I finally got around to finish Call of Duty Advanced Warfare. Yippity ding dong! <laughs> it's a game where the story is just a bunch of meaningless bullshit. It's there to justify why you're going to go shoot a bunch of other white people. And maybe some foreigners. Wasn't that one foreigners? Who, do you, who are the bad guys? Were they South Americans or was that ghosts? Uh, the bad guys are su- in South American. In the, the bad guys in Ghost the Federation. You and the Federation are at war with each other. The Federation. Stop saying the Federation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, Black Ops where you're fighting the South Americans as well because of Raul Menendez. Menendez. Oh, and uh, in, Castro. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I it's, hate those games. Yeah. In uh, Advanced Warfare, you're fighting Atlas, who's overseen by Jeremy Irons. No. I mean, Jonathan Irons. No. Oh, yes. oh, Jonathan Irons, right. No, I thought you were going to say the actor. Oh, and who the hell is the actor? Why can't I ever remember this guy's name? I don't know. Who cares? Who cares? Oh, Kevin Spacey. Oh, thank you. Kevin Spacey. It looks just like him, too, mm-hmm. which is kind of neat. Yep. But yeah, you, you initially started out fighting in North Korea. Or, no, in Seoul. You're fighting in Korea. And uh, there's these bombs that are set to go off. There is an intermediate bad guy, but he's not the real bad guy. In fact, all this, it turns out that the war is all, that all this combat is precipitated by Irons, who starts off as supposedly being the good guy. But you, you're just a marine. You're in there to go out and be a human meat shield for the other guy's bullets. Thankfully, you lose an arm, and uh, Atlas gives you back an arm, and you become their guinea pig. And then you go out and you do a bunch of guinea pig missions and shoot some other uh, guys who shoot you and, and, and who shoot you as well. Ultimately, you try to save the world. It's pathetic. No one really gets saved, but at least the bomb didn't go off. So what makes Advanced Warfare different from the other Call of Duty games? First of all, uh, it's more of a near future rather than uh, modern. So Ghost and Modern Warfare, it's, it, I would say it's more near future. It would be... It would be more near future than uh, Ghost, which is uh, a little. Uh, it would probably be set ten years or so in the future, or is this one set much more in the future? But it's still not complete at the point where you're shooting uh, phasers at each other. You still there are some bullets, but you also have uh, 
electric and uh, pulse weapon. You have a very simple pulse weapon, which is a grenade called a Tulsa grenade, mm-hmm. which does shoot uh, electricity, or rather an EMP pulse, an EMP, which disables the uh, other the, uh, your opponent's uh, mecha units and their uh, drones. There's a lot of drone combat in this game, and you're shooting little drones out of the sky. Yeah, that was one thing that I kind of liked about the game. Maybe the only thing I liked about the game was there are these, like, swarms, these clouds of little tiny drones, and they were sort of like the drones in Half-Life 2, I guess, these, like, little propeller-driven things. It's about the same size, but there would be, like, 80 of them in a swarm, and they would buzz all around you in this, like, tight formation. It was kind of like watching, like, a flock of budgies or, like, a little cloud kind of zoom around you. It's so beautiful. Yep. So, you... Second, let me just Okay, so they had drones, and you had a lot, and then you also had exoskeleton that you wore, which was supposed to enhance your combat abilities and make you the, the super soldier. You were still, you still had vulnerabilities, but and this one more actually enhanced your ability to uh, run and jump. So you got like boosters, which allowed you to leap up buildings, or you had, uh, and then the exosuit also let you climb up the side of buildings. And, uh, you didn't quite have suction cup, but you had whips. So you, so you could scale the wall like Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So, it was more modern technology, more based on computers. But it was really fun. The only thing I like, the thing I liked the most was in the end, you got a, you got in one of the actual mega suits used by Atlas and used it to uh, achieve the end objectives. This is after, of course, your arm been hacked off again because reasons. <laughs> Reasons. Mm-hmm. So, there's that. Then there's also, as, as I mentioned way earlier in the show, Wolfenstein New Blood, which I started. New Order. Uh, yeah, New Order. Oh, yeah, what do you think of it so far? You've heard me gush about it. Yep, I like it so far. Compelling story. Um, I was kind of surprised to start in the cockpit of a, an airplane with a sniveling pilot. But <laughs> them's the, that's how it breaks down. Yeah, the intro to that game does not do the rest of the game justice, I thought. It's, like, super scripted, and it's like you running around doing a bunch of emergency stuff, and you have to jump from one plane to another. It's totally a different pace than the rest of the game. Like, I was pessimistic about the game based on the intro. Yeah, and then then after you escape and you jump on, you land in the water, then you actually get to see this, the, uh, the loading screen for this first time, and it's a bit of a shock to realize that this was the introduction to the game and not the game itself. Oh, right. You see, like, the title card in the opening credits. How long? Like, 45 minutes or an hour or something into the game? Yeah. It's kind of weird. I like that. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. Let's see. And I also played a bit more... I went back and played a bit of modern war, of Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Oh, uh, Call of Duty 4. Yeah. Yeah, that one's a classic. That's like the only... That's probably the best... That's probably the last good Call of Duty. Mm. If you ask me. Mm -hmm. Well, no one asked you. Oh, yeah. Well, it's my show, sort of, you know. Yeah, well, I'm uh, taking over for now while I talk about what games I like and which ones you can go... And you can go suck a lemon or, uh, you know, hump a cactus. I don't care. As long as it's not the other way around. Okay. Okay. But I did, I did like Black Ops, and in fact, I uh, went back in on Black Ops 2 to go get two achievements. <laughs> One was Family Reunion, and you get 
this achievement by uh, replaying the scenario where you have to escort the uh, what the hell is his name Noriega to uh, expel to be uh, extradited back to the United States or wherever to be prosecuted. Unfortunately, he's not Texas. He's not Nexus target or uh, false prophet. In fact, it turns out that he's just a pathetic excuse for you to go and do a bunch of piddling garbage for Hudson and the CIA. So you get him, you escort him, and then he takes, and eventually you get your orders to follow him to this lookout point. And you're told that he said, and, he, and you're told to pick up the uh, scope rifle there, and he says, okay. You have a present down there, and so you hear Hudson come in over the radio and tell you to shoot this guy because it's Menendez. If you shoot him in the head, you don't get the achievement, but if you shoot him in the legs twice, you get the achievement family reunion. And then a cutscene that, that reflects this achievement. Why is it called family reunion? Okay, for people who haven't played this, okay, so... I think that's probably a given. Okay. You... There's a the cutscene that follows is actually you, you being having already been incapacitated by being shot twice by Raul Menendez. You're in a scene with Hudson who's tied in a chair. You're underground incapacitated, and there's a kid in the background, and he has to listen to uh, Menendez give his self righteous talk about oh how he lost his sister and all this crap while he rocks it while he cries around like a fucking peacock, and then he. Uh, Bungie shoots Hudson in the head after Hudson that has a little uh, strop. Strop? Tantrum. Strop. What a limey word is that? <laughs> oh no, I was bored. I decided to use a limey word today. Okay, lime on. I'm sucking a lemon here. You lime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this one, in this one, it's <laughs> because you uh, shot down. Uh, because you shot your uh, target in the head, instead of shooting in the head, you shot him in the legs. You actually have to shoot him twice, and then when uh, you're down there, you get shot in the legs twice. Which is actually how how your character Woods finds up in the wheelchair when you're uh, talking to him as section in the uh, cutscenes. And then during this same scene where uh, well where Menendez is being a strutting a strutting cock. He shoots Hudson in each kneecap. Hence, family reunion, because you're all shot in the knees. That's very charming. <laughs> okay, hang on, your name is Section? Uh, yeah, Section? You, yeah. Like people are seated in you? <laughs> what kind of dumb name is Section? I don't know, you're, Al you're Alex Mason's kid. You're, you're, um, you're Mason's kid, and, uh, you're, and, but, your, but your nickname is Section. Who's the sister, Partition? <laughs> what kind of... Anyway. You, you played this game? I I remember nothing from this game, and I started replaying it again recently, just thinking maybe I missed something, and I couldn't be bothered to play anymore because it's stupid, it's dumb. Hey, what I don't like about modern, I love Call of Duty One. I love its expansion, United Offensive. I love Call of Duty Two. That's the best one. I love Call of Duty Four. And what? And World at War. I don't love it. I, I wouldn't give it. I wouldn't give World at War a second thought if it didn't have co-op, which I love playing with you. Because mm -hmm. it's so cool having a collaborative co-op first-person shooter where you can play the shoot the story with a friend. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, the after Call of Duty Four, they started making it more like a movie and less like a game, 
where they would very often steal control away from the player and blah 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 a bunch of story BS at you and put in quick time events where there's only one way to get through something by pressing a button when it tells you to press the button. Um, and it becomes less of a game and more of a movie where to continue the movie you press the right button or the right direction. And that ticks me off. I want to play a damn game. I don't want to sit there waiting to play the game. And in um, Ghosts, which I played recently and really did nothing for me, it had, it would like, there would be a, a whole cutscene, blah, 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 and then it gives you back control. But you can't, you can look left, you can look right, but you can't move in any direction but forward. And moving you forward makes you walk side by side with some other guy. So, like, there's no reason for you to hold forward at all. They could have done it in a cutscene, but they were like, oh, I guess we haven't let the player do anything for nine minutes. I get, why don't they walk forward? Then it's like they're playing. So that's what really pisses me off. Call of Duty 1, the expansion, and 2, you're always in control. And even when people are talking, you can jump up and down, or you can do what I do, which is shoot uh, your friends in the foot. <laughs> or and watch throw them, grenades. Or throw grenades and watch them run around, but you've already thrown a grenade to where they were going to run, so they blow up. And it's ridiculous and makes no sense. And that's why it's a better game. And then I, you can throw grenades at the end, and well, I mean, well, they give the debriefing, and everyone's cheering for the motherland! <laughs> yeah, you're you're the honorary Russian of the show. <laughs> well, I guess Anatoly too. You're more Russian than I am. Oh yeah, I am, aren't I? I'm I'm fifty percent Russian. <laughs> 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 all right, is that all you played this week? Um, let's see. We played our stupid clicker games. Yeah, I don't know if those are worth mentioning. No, they don't count for shit. Although we did play Dungeon Village on our phone. That oh, was I was going to mention. Why don't you talk about Dungeon Village a bit, and then I'll take my turn. Okay, this is by Kairosoft, who also did Game Developers. Game Dev Story. Game Dev Story. They're a Japanese developer. But the translation of the game is really It's actually quite good. Oh, the localization. Yeah. yeah. It's very good. It's yeah. funny. Yeah, localization is really is uh, quite good. So you can't tell that it's was translated, which is, which is a plus, because sometimes... Japanese games tend to be badly translated, as in the case of uh, Mola Mola. Yeah, I talked about Mola Mola once, the uh, virtual pet big fishy game. Mm-hmm. So, in this game, you're uh, you're not the adventurer. You're contr- you you're the you're the you're the overlord of this adventure as this adventurer town. It's kind of a god god game. It's like a strategy overseeing Sim City sort of a game. Mm-hmm. So you build. Stores and housing for your people, and you gotta keep them happy. And you so they get gear, and then you give them this gear as a present. And the better the gear they have, the more uh, monsters they can kill, which contribute to your town's popularity. And the higher your town's popularity is, the more adventurers come, and the more adventurers that are satisfied, the more ha- people that will settle in your town instead of just being visitors. And then you can collect taxation taxes from them. Yay! <laughs> So each, so you can build a lot of different uh, stores. Each of these stores contributes to your income, and also to the abilities and the gear mm-hmm. that your adventurers, which you have no control over, have. So that's kind of neat, where your adventurers buy gear to make you money, but them buying the gear also gives you money as the mayor of the town or whoever, whoever you are. Mm-hmm. And every time you get your popularity increases, you get medals, which makes the people happy. But if you're not careful and you uh, neglect your adventurers for too long, then they can't defeat the monsters and you uh, become stagnant. You don't have any growth. And in fact, you can lose 
popular you can lose popularity if you have a dragon rampage in nearby. Yeah, every now and then you have uh, quests and objectives and uh, other occurrences that come up that you have to dedicate your people to. So you'll you pay money to send them on a quest, which is kind of a, now that I think of it, it's kind of a fun mechanic. It's sort of a play on like the World of Warcraft formula where you as the adventurer are paid by the quest giver. Mm-hmm. So it costs you money as the person putting your people on the quest. And I but guess, then you make money when they sell their gear back to you. Yeah. Which is kind of nice. So I'm actually at a point where I have uh, almost 20 taxpayers now. I built their houses. Unfortunately, I need I need to expand my town, but I'm not getting my, set, my third expansion. And every last nook and cranny is crammed full of either flowers, buildings, or roads. I don't think there is a third expansion. I think you got to make do with the size you have. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a... I would say this game is quite similar to... It's like a Peter Molyneux game, I think. It's kind of like Black and White, or it's similar to, like, Theme Park or Theme Hospital. Or it's a tycoon game at its essence. And you have to balance uh, making... Profit, or at least uh, having enough money to sustain your town and to increase your town for the sole purpose of having all of these adventurers that decide, based on the popularity of your town, to move in and to fight monsters and to uh, contribute to the economy. So it's a really fun game. Kairosoft is a terrific uh, developer, and I don't know if I like this better or the other game of theirs that we own, which is Game Dev Story which was the first mobile app I ever purchased. Yep, same here. It's a Based great on a one, demo. but you're, uh, in control, instead of controlling a whole town, you control just a uh, game development studio, and you decide, okay, what games they're going to work on next, what kind of game it is, and uh, you can even name it. So, uh, what are some of the more creative names you've come up with? Oh, probably something having to do with bums and things that come out of bums. Uh, that would make sense, and some sort of snot rag, maybe? Oh, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. And in various iterations of, uh, let's see, shit face and, uh, and, uh, shoot the, and shoot the asshole? Yeah, bums, like <laughs> I said. That's right. There, there's been a bunch of very similar kind of clones that have come out on Steam and in, on PC. And in fact, uh, Kairosoft started out as a PC developer in Japan. And, uh, Game Dev Story was a PC game, um, originally but only in Japanese, which is a real shame, because it had a little bit more depth to it, and it ran in higher resolution. That would have been awesome. I wish they would publish that for PC. Mm-hmm. But now they're exclusively a mobile developer. I think they only do Android and Apple. Yep. Right, so that's it for what you played this week? Yep, I didn't play uh, much. I, yeah, like I said, I played my clickers. I did that. Um, and, of course, I played World of Warcraft. Of course. Of course. All right, well, I'll talk very briefly about the stuff that I played. Um, we already talked about Quiplash. Um, Quiplash is so great. Do get it. If you don't get it, then I would love to host a session on Twitch or something and have uh, listeners come on in and uh, play along with us. Like we said, three to eight players. Um, and the snarkier or dirtier <laughs> your uh, sense of humor is, the more votes you will probably elicit from your fellow players. It's a really, really good game. Just like everything that Jackbox, a.k.a. Jellyvision, makes. Um, I played a little bit of Knights of the Old Republic 2. They just released, I guess it's Bioware. Bioware or Obsidian. I think Obsidian is the studio that made Knights of the Old Republic 2. Um, Just released a patch on Steam that 
gives the game, and this is a game that's plus, you know, 10 plus years old. It gives the game high resolution and widescreen monitor support and Steve achieve, achievements and Steam Workshop support, which uh, gives... Did you say achievements? Yes. Oh, boing. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I think I'll go back and play it. Well, Knights of the Old Republic 1 has not been updated yet. Oh, Only the sequel. Okay, screw the first one. I'll play the second one. Uh, you can. You shouldn't. You should play the first one first. But, it's but an achievements, RP- achievements. It's like it's like a fifty-hour RPG. You sort of want to know what you did in the previous fifty hours. I don't care what I did in the previous fifty hours. I want achievements. Oh, you're such an achievement, evening lady. <laughs> um, so the, it also has Steam Workshop mod support because this is a game that was kind of notoriously released in a supposedly unfinished state where they cut out a lot of contents because they ran out of budget or time or whatever. Um, And mods, similar to uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, mods were provided by the the community posthumously to uh, re-add the uh, cut content and take away bugs and stuff like that. So that's all hosted right on the Steam platform first party right now, and you can install that by just clicking one button. So that's kind of cool. So I'll get back into it. I played through the tutorial, which takes about half an hour or so. We'll see whether I have the patience for a game like this anymore. I played and finished the first and second games of the series. I love them to pieces. They have a, like a glowing reputation in my mind. I had a wonderful time playing them. Now we'll see if I have the patience. They're very talky, and they're kind of old-fashioned in their design. As we've mentioned in the podcast previously, they're sort of the progenitors to Mass Effect very similar in their tone and in their themes and in their situations, where which is to say that it's basically a fantasy RPG with like stars and lasers. <laughs> that's that's all star. That's all those those new things are really. It's the same old stories in a new skin, and there's nothing really wrong with that because Star Wars has a terrific lore, and like I've said, I actually prefer the stories in those games, or at least what I remember about them. I prefer those to the movies even. Um, but it's very long-winded. It's literally like a good 40 or 50 hours long. And I think of all the other games I can play in that amount of time when I think of that. Um, what really made Knights of the Old Republic too special for me was this one character that you meet right at the beginning, which is an old woman named Kreia. And she's a really interesting, complicated character. Um, you don't know for the longest time who she is or whether she is good or bad. But what I loved about her character was that while your other um, while your other teammates that you can group up with are clearly good or bad, and uh, they influence you to do certain things in certain ways that will be advantageous to one party and uh, crappy for the other party, Kreia really preaches the benefits of neutrality. Um, and this sort of reminds me of something that was explained to me in, during the brief times where I was playing Dungeons & Dragons. Dungeons & Dragons, and th- these are games that are based on the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, I think, 3.5 rule set, or 3 rule sets. They are, they're, uh, they're, they look like real-time games, but they're actually turn-based games, but there's, like, no pause between turns, at least with the combat. Um, you can pause it freely, but things kind of, you know, everybody swings their sword or shoots or dodges at the same time, and then a moment passes, and then everybody does their next move. So, um, sorry, going back to Dungeons & Dragons. Um, Dungeons & Dragons has something called alignment, where your character might be lawful or chaotic, sorry, lawful or evil, 
or neutral. Or there's the other uh, axis, which is... Uh, are, the, I got this screwed it up. Good or evil or neutral, or lawful or chaotic or neutral. And so those are two axes of the same chart. And in the very middle is neutral, neutral, true neutral. And so what someone had told me was that there's actually two different kinds of true neutral, and both of them are perfectly valid ways to play, and yet they're like totally, they both appear at the same, uh, at the same uh, coordinates on this uh, two-dimensional axis. However, they're both like diametrically different, which is so fascinating. So one kind of true neutral is the kind of a person that no matter what happens around them, they have no opinion about it, they don't care, and they'll let people be the way that they are. They're not going to, they, they have like a strong policy of non-intervention. Um, they do not want to participate or to change matters in any way, either because they revere and respect the philosophy of neutrality, or because they just really don't give a crap, or they're along for the ride or something. They're along for profit, and they don't really care about the squabbles of two different parties. That's one definition of neutral. That's called passive neutral. Then there's active neutral, which is another perfectly valid, equally neutral version of true neutral. Active neutral means that you go out of your way to ensure that the situation ends on a neutral ground. So if one side is taking advantage of another side, you will, uh, you will uh, tip the scales, you will become actively involved to make sure that in the end both sides are equal, that both sides are benefiting, or that neither side is taking advantage of the other. Um, and that's also like someone who believes in the philosophy of neutrality, but in a very different way. They want to ensure that the world is neutral, whereas the other person wants to ensure that they personally remain, remain neutral. So this character, Kreia, even more complicated, I guess, is somewhere in between. I guess she's more of the active neutral, sort of a neutral character, where she'll, she'll uh, talk to you and kind of mentor you to say, here's the situation, here's what this person wants, and here's what this person needs. Uh, what are you going to do about it? And she kind of acts as like your Jedi Master, sort of, because I believe you start this game with uh, amnesia, and you have to kind of rediscover the powers that you already cultivated in the previous game. So you'll answer her question, and you'll say, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, like, lawful and good. I want to uh, punish the bad guys and make sure that the good guys come out on top. And she'll say, what are you, stupid? If you do that, then if you hand everything to the good guys to make sure they're good, then they will have learned nothing. They will have gained zero strength, and they'll just get taken advantage of again later. You're going to take, you know, you if you want to beat up these criminals and take away the money that they stole from someone and give them all to this one person, they're going to become a bullseye for all the criminals in the whole area to rob five minutes after you leave. You're being stupid. Um... And on the other side, if you decide you want to rob everyone and keep it all for yourself, then she says, what are you doing? You're stupid. You're going to throw this whole area out of balance. And these people, if they can't eat properly, then they'll become other criminals who will become desperate and then come after you because you're the one who has all the riches now. They'll come to resent you. And their if you, they die, then their nine children will come after you later on and it's going to inconvenience you and you're going to have to spend the money that you stole just to defend yourself. So... In the end, what she preaches is kind of the butterfly effect sort of a thing, where you do one very small act, and that has wide-ranging consequences that end up being beneficial for everyone, and at the same time, it's not entirely clear that you, the person who precipitates the situation, has done anything at all. 
So I found that really, really interesting, just kind of philosophically, from like an honest-to-goodness, like, real-life standpoint. That's a really great philosophy to believe in. And, you know, I don't necessarily ascribe to this philosophy or do that or go out of my way to be like that, but it's something that I always try to think about. You know, what are the, what are, what are the repercussions that will happen two or three steps down the line if I take this action? So that's something that this one fictional character from the sequel to a game has taught me. Oh, and, and since it's a sequel, I, have, it, I, I should mention what a horrible, incredibly long game name this game has. This game is called Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2... Revenge of the Sith? The Sith Lords. Oh, the Sith Lords. So it's like, I don't know, I don't have it in front of me. That was just off the top of my head. It's like a 12-word title or something. It is a terrible, terrible name for a game. But it's a great game, and I super-duper recommend it. That being said, I don't know if I have the patience for it anymore. I already finished it once. I have a positive memory of it, even though I played the kind of crippled, unfinished version that they released to market at the time. But whatever. I love that game. Um, very quickly, the other games I played... Oh, this is a favorite of Ben Chandler's. This is a game called Slipstream 5000, which I, ha I own from good old games, uh, GOG.com. I had a demo for this, I think, on a PC Gamer Magazine bundled CD. I played the demo over and over and over. It's a game that's kind of like Mario Kart. It's a racing game with power-ups and weapons. But what makes it different is that you're in these kind of uh, spaceshipy hovercraft sort of vehicles. I think they're all, like, powered... I think they're hovercrafts. They're powered by, like, fans uh, that blow air, something like that. Um, so it's you versus other hovercrafts. And so you have to turn left and right, and you also have to go up and down to dodge obstacles and to strategize. You have these, like, laser guns. You have a booster that can make you go faster, and you can purchase missiles that are very expensive but might give you the advantage that you need at the time that you need it most. And... Um, it has, I don't know, that's about all there is to it. You go you go around the world to these different locales. I got about halfway through it, which is the furthest. And you go in a circle. And you go in a circle, yeah, sure. They're like, uh, they're, they're uh, like, ovular levels. But there's lots of lefts and rights, there's lots of ups and downs, going through tunnels and dodging, uh, dodging obstacles. And, um, different terrains and different surfaces. And I don't really like the power-ups. I wish the game didn't have power-ups. As people attack you, your damage goes up, and it can affect either your steering or your engine, which is your speed. Um, and you can sometimes fly through, you can either fly through little icons that appear by attacking other people. Sometimes they poop out a power-up that you can fly through, and it will repair either your steering or your engines. Or maybe it gives you a little boost of speed. Or the most infuriating one is maybe they poop out this power-up that uh, reverses all your controls, so up is down and left is right for a little while. That's really irritating. I hate that. Um, uh, so, yeah, whatever. That's Slipstream 5000. Uh, I, I might be glossing over it a little bit, but it's a really fun game. It has a very good engine. It runs terrific on modern systems thanks to uh, GOG's DOSBox configuration. And it has uh, joystick support and everything. So, uh, well worth the money. Um, the last game that I'll talk about is Link's Awakening DX for the Game Boy Color. I owned Link's Awakening for the original Game Boy, which I played in monochrome. I don't know if it's four shades of, of, of gray. That might be, that might be it. And like one blank, which is like the green of the background of the Game Boy. I love that game a lot. Um, I, the only Zelda games I've ever really enjoyed were 
first A Link to the Past, which is for the Super Nintendo, then this one the, for the Game Boy, uh, Link's Awakening, and finally um, Ocarina of Time for the Nintendo 64. And after, before and after that, I don't really have any interest in the series whatsoever. Um, so I, this version I'm playing is an emulated version for the Game Boy Color. So they took the previously monochromatic game and just added, I don't know, eight colors to it or 16 colors, whatever the humble capabilities of that system may be. A really, really fun game. It's uh, only got two buttons, uh, A and B, on their select and start two, I guess. Um, which is a little bit limiting because you have to switch through your inventory items a little bit, but it's okay because it's a bit of an abbreviated game. There aren't too many inventory items, and you pick them up uh, one by one as you go through the game. I think I'm about a third of the way through or so now. Um, what makes this one unique is that uh, I guess the tone of the game is what makes Link's Awakening unique. It's a little bit silly. There are some kind of slapsticky, comic-y things that are just uh, played up a little bit more than they would have been in the other uh, uh, Link games, which is kind of cool. It's it's really cute. Um, there are... I don't know. What am I going to say about this game? If you haven't played a Zelda game, I'd be surprised. Well, you haven't, wifey, have not played a Zelda game, have you? Yes, I have. What did you play? I played the original on uh, Game Boy. I borrowed it from a friend. I just didn't get very far in it. Oh, what, the one that I'm playing? Uh, yeah. I played the Monochrome. Oh, I didn't know that. Like I said, I didn't get very far, so I couldn't really comment on it. Hmm. It's the kind of game that you have to spend a lot of time with. It's not like a pick-up-and-play and have a session and you're done. It's like a whole like adventure beginning to end, uh, get through the story and go through dungeons and stuff like that. It's a game that takes quite some time. I, I do really recommend it. If you're only going to play one game in the series, I would say play A Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo. Just the graphics and the music are beautiful. And it's a little bit simplistic. It's challenging, but a little simplistic. And if you've played uh, The Binding of Isaac, then you have, like, 80% of the skills that you need to get through those games. Because the, the Binding of Isaac is heavily influenced by uh, the dungeon design in uh, Zelda games. So that's a really good one. And it has a surprisingly great soundtrack. Um, it's a it's the Game Boy Color, I guess, must have the same sound chip as the original Game Boy, because the soundtrack is identical and the sound effects are identical. It's a very charming, nice, light-hearted, kind of fantasy-adventuring kind of a soundtrack. It's probably by Koji Kondo, who did the other Zelda games and the Mario series and stuff like that, but I'll have to double-check. Okay, wow, we've been going for two hours and we ain't even up to our topic yet. Nope, we are. Let's talk... Let's just, I guess, be uh, brief in our description of each of our things, shall we? Sure, no problem. Let's see. Okay. But before we start, I uh, forgot to mention last time we did this that um, there are a couple of standalone games in the Sims series. That's our topic today, by the way. We're yes. going to talk about the Sims again. Was, uh, there are Sims stories. Basically, this was this, the Maxis had adapted the Sims 2 to be uh, laptop friendly. They called it Sim Stories. Basically, what these were was it's a sandbox world. It was open world, but you had specific objectives and the uh, and, and the graphic quality was dumbed down to be handled flawlessly by a laptop machine. I don't think they dumbed down the graphic quality, but the, I think the maps were much smaller. There were fewer places to go, right? This was Sims 2, so they didn't really... So you were confined to a lot to begin with. Right, but there were fewer lots in general. Yeah. Just because it was a little contained story. Yeah, it was a self-contained story with objectives, but it was still... But it was still a sandbox mode, and you... 
and I played it briefly. It was interesting because you had, in order to really get anywhere, you had to uh, carry out these objectives. Some of them are stupid. Pick up my aunt's dry cleaning, or you know, you had or get ready for a date. I still love having to pick up the dry cleaning. That was funny. But each, but these two stories gave you context and a bit of background. So what what The Sims Two lacked in uh, any sort of motivation. This game made up for very slightly. Another similar one to this, which took, which was, which borrowed from the Sims Three engine, was Sims Three Medieval. This was uh, with the oh monarch. yeah, that's right. Yes, it did. Yeah. So this one was a lot more structured. It was it was still open box world, but you had, but each, but you had multiple uh, timelines that you could pursue once you unlocked the initial one. You had a specific objective, which was to get a number of uh, medals. So once you started the game, you made your monarch male or female. You don't really, you didn't really age in this game. Aging was turned mm. off, except for children. If you were a monarch or anyone else, you could have a child, and then it would, the child would be an infant, and then it'd grow up into, and then it would just become a child and stay like that. What was interesting about this was, I didn't even think about this until I had actually uh, played a separate mission on uh, my knight. Yeah, you had uh, different stations. You had monarch, knight, assassin. Oh, had... there's like an herbalist or something. There's a magician. Yeah, there was a there was a sorcerer. There was your. Uh... Was there a jester? That was the bard. Oh, uh, yeah. There was a bard. Um, you were a black. You could be a blacksmith. There was the. Um, the actual the physician, and then there were two uh, religious sects: the, Jaco- the Jacobins and the uh, Patarians. Oh right, and this game was this game had a lot of similarities to um, Irosoft's Dungeon Village, didn't it? Now that I think about it. Yeah, except this was nice. Except that you actually were you controlled one character rather than the whole thing. Well, both. Mm-hmm. You're sort of the tycoon style builder of the city, building by building, but then you can play the individual key characters yourself. Yep. And to play each into play, you would select the quest at the start, and it had specific objectives that you had to carry out. And if you weren't diligent about your objectives, you suffered penalties because you you weren't doing your job. And in fact, if you were anybody but the monarch and you didn't carry out your two daily tasks, you could be put in the stocks and you got tomatoes thrown at you. Oh, that's right. Oh, I had that happen to me when I ran out of time on one of my priests. Mm-hmm. And so she had to be escorted to the stocks. But fortunately, as a monarch, you just get somebody going, complaining that you haven't done anything. So. Oh, right. So you have, like, two main objectives that you have to carry out before the sun goes down or something. Before the next day. And didn't you have, like, one optional objective, too, that you could do for more credit or something, but you don't have to? Yep. And then you have your uh, overall arching quest, which sometimes you had to uh, wait for a passage of time. Yeah, that's right. So there's, like, a multiple-day objective based on whatever kind of quest or super major objective you're doing. Yep. And then there are the daily responsibilities you had to do in which, addition to that. Which reflected your station. So anyways, I had this one time when I had where I could choose to play as my assassin, or rather who is my, my intelligence, who is, or rather your uh, master of uh, whispers, mm. or your um, or your um, knight. And uh, the quest was to... Uh, find out what was wrong with the monarch because there was something suspicious about them. So I played as my knight. No, I played as my, uh, actually, my master of whispers. And I had to, and in the end, I figured out that my, that my monarch 
had been compromised and had actually been replaced by an impot, had been uh, compromised and was doing all this bad stuff. And I had a choice. Do I uh, imprison them or do I just assassinate them in their sleep? I chose, them to, I chose to assassinate them and effectively save the kingdom. The quest ended and when it put me back at the main screen where I can choose my next uh, quest rather than play in the open box world, which you could do once you had finished all the quests for that uh, particular uh, objective. Like, there was a super objective, and then there were secondary objectives. And so once you finished that, I, I came back to the main screen. I clicked, I, I selected a um, quest to play as a monarch, but before I could proceed, it said, the king, no, his, the queen has, was assassinated, or your king was assassinated. You must now pick a new monarch. Because my queen was a whore, and I'm like, okay, whatever, let's, uh, <laughs> let's bonk uh, the master of uh, whatever, the guy who's in charge, the master builder, Hey, he's hot looking. <laughs> um, so then she had a couple of little butts, uh, offspring running around, and I picked uh, I picked the oldest girl to become my next queen. And so there's actually a line of succession if you do this, which wasn't, which I didn't realize. And when I assassinated my queen, I thought, "Oh fuck! I can't believe I killed my monarch." <laughs> so there is that. So back to. Uh, oh, so Sims two stories. Is that all you were going to say about those? Yeah, there was Sims 2 stories. Oh, there's Castaway too. And then there's Castaways, which is essentially the same thing as Sims stories, except you're on an island. There's a little bit more freeform, wasn't it? It was freeform in the end, but you but uh, with and all the stuff you got eventually tied into the whole island theme. So you would have like bamboo uh, style TV. Everything was bamboo or wooden. Nothing was metal or plastic. Right. So you had a whole bunch of wood stuff. You even had like some sort of wooden wallpaper. Oh, and there was crafting, wasn't there? Yeah. I vaguely remember. Mm-hmm. It was some basic stuff that borrowed from the uh, expansion packs and, and from the Sims 2 engine. Mm-hmm. And then Sims 3 and many Sims Medieval borrowed the elements from the Sims 3 engine. Right. So I guess these games, the Stories games and the Castaway game and the Medieval games, these were, these were ways of adding structure to the otherwise totally freeform sandbox games. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave you... Well, some more than others. Some of them were very rigid. It would say, do this, now do this, now do this. And you're really just kind of following a checklist of whatever you're supposed to do next, which in itself is kind of questionably whether it's fun, but the stories were silly and cute, and it gave you, like, there was a narrator that would kind of tell you what was going on or how you were feeling about this, and that would be reflected by the way that your sim would act or or, uh, communicate. So they were charming, and they were cute, and they were short, and the... Did you mention this, that the the stories, Sims 2 stories games added a bunch of hotkeys, keyboard keys? I don't remember. Oh, yes, because it was laptop. That's what I think we meant by laptop. Right? Yeah, which was kind of neat. So it added all these keyboard shortcuts, which I don't think ever came back. So that was sort of a neat addition. So those, that structure kind of came back later on in The Sims 3 uh, for in various ways, for like adventures or for jobs or stuff like that, where it would be totally free form, but your job or your situation might say, uh, you have a quest to do this, and it would either say, make this condition true, or it would say, uh, you have to rescue this person, or you have to get this artifact out of, a, out of this place, or you're a police officer and you have to do these four things today if you want to increase in your job satisfaction or your job mm-hmm. progression. But they weren't as, but they didn't have a time, but most of these didn't have time, didn't have a uh, timer stuck to it, which is 
what happened in Sims Medieval. Right. Although you didn't have a timer, if you didn't make progress for a couple of days and you your mental progress would actually uh, start to degrade depending on how much of a slacker you were. Yeah, and, that's right. But the better quality, but the um, quickly and more efficiently you completed, the more the better medals you got, which unlocked, which contributed to your ability to build stuff, different buildings and different. Um, the word I'm looking for. Uh, attributes. Attributes to uh, enhance your kingdom, which increased the overall health of your kingdom, which increased your intelligence and security. At first, you start with a very vulnerable, stupid, unhealthy kingdom where basically everyone's a walking plague machine. <laughs> and they're dumb as a bag of hammers. Mm -hmm. But eventually you get culture and all these wonderful things which makes your uh, kingdom happy, people less sick. Because when you start out, people, everyone, every day, every your poor uh, physician has a, a waiting room of like 10 sims all moaning, growing, and pretty much pissing on the floor because they can't control their blood or anything because they're utterly miserable. Oh, begging you to put a bunch of leeches on them. <laughs> Here's a leech, glorp. Yeah, and oh yeah, you had to as a oh, I had a leech mini game. Yeah, as a uh, physician, you had to go. You had to go out and harvest leeches, and harvest herbs. If you were a blacksmith, you went out and you would harvest minerals to build your stuff. So you actually had to collect the materials you need, or you would go into town and buy a specific the specific items for food. If you were a bard, you would go to a certain location and just stand around and daydream and then make notes for your songs and poetry. And in in a lot of ways, Sims 3 Medieval was more of a role-playing game than most role-playing games. It's a game where you really play a role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really got into your whole station and your and the, uh, and the uh, when you're in the Creative Sims screen, the armor available to you really reflect, it tended to reflect your station more. Oh yeah, the, uh, the clothing and the armor were all fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it... It was just a beautiful game. I still love it. I have it installed still. And I've gone back to play it a couple of times. I'm going to go put it back on. Did we ever find our box? Yes, we did. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had... I don't remember what happened. We watched a review or something of the game, uh, like, two or three years after buying it, and we're like, okay, we got to play this thing right Wasn't now. Wasn't it a Lazy Games review? It must have been Lazy Game yeah, Reviews. Yeah, LGR. <laughs> Yay. Hi, Clint. <laughs> so, uh, he played the game, and we're like, we got to play this game right now friggin' now, where is it? Yep. And we went through boxes and boxes of our old video games and our old music CDs and oh. DVDs and stuff. We couldn't find it anywhere. So we eventually we pirated it just to play it soon, and then we found the box right after. Of course. Of course. Okay, so that's a fun one. If you have the mean, I would definitely try and get a second-hand copy. I, I actually originally got it because I got a, a gift certificate from my sister and brother-in-law for my birthday. Aww. And I'm like, video games! Ding, 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 perfect present. So I that game was not very well received, though. Mm -hmm. It didn't sell very well, people didn't really enjoy it, and I think it's because people didn't like that little bit of structure that it adds. It's more than a little bit of structure. It's really prescriptive in what it tells you, yeah, you but to do. You have, but, it, but if you did like it, that structure is great, in that if you understand that, you're not, that it's still a sandbox world and that you still have some freedom, it's not so bad. Because I found that the one thing with the Sims games is, what the hell am I going to do now? Because you, uh, you reach a point where your Sim is just so inundated with skills and everything that they don't have a motivation anymore. There Whereas, are a lot of people who don't like the Sims series whatsoever because they feel that, like, indecision paralysis. They're like, I can do anything, so what the hell do I do? I'll just do nothing and uninstall. Yeah, so this one, that's good because this one does address that. So, 
going from our more structured world into our sandbox world, we're going to delve into Sims 3. Oh, this was the first, this was the Sims that introduced the whole open world concept. This was truly the Sims sandbox world. That was definitely the most important, most unique feature of mm -hmm. Sims 3. The fact that, well, I remember seeing uh, an early trailer, like a, a teaser trailer kind of a thing for Sims 3. And it made fun of The Sims 2 in such a poignant way. It said, imagine you lived your whole life in one room. Or imagine you lived your whole life in your house. And that's literally what you would do in Sims 2. Because there were so many loading screens whenever you went anywhere. If you were going to, like, another... If you went to go to a restaurant or something, it would load the... First it would load, like, the, the world, and then the neighborhood, and then the building... It was really nasty. So what you would do, ideally, the strategy in The Sims to avoid loading screens was to buy everything you would ever need and stick it in your house so that you never had to leave. Mm -hmm. So in this one, everything was right there accessible. The only time you really had any loading screen is when you were traveling to one of the uh, three tourist destinations. Or, or to school. Or to university, or eventually to the future. But right. but all but these places in themselves were all open universes with the same uh, mechanics and everything, and so you didn't feel like you were confined to a small space when you went to these places. The university was big; each of these foreign locations was as big as your town, and uh, even even the future was a full big town. It really was it actually. Some a couple of buildings had the same structure, but everything else was futuristic. So you really felt like you stepped through a time machine and exited like ten thousand, like a thousand years, a hundred years or so in the future. Mm -hmm. But one drawback was because it was so enormous, and it became it got to the point where if you had every expansion and every stuff pack installed, if you were unlucky, your game would rent every couple of days. It would pause, or at least it would chug. At like three o'clock in the morning, while your sim was asleep, and although your sim was still sleeping, the game itself wasn't progressing because it was processing all this stuff in the background before it would start again. Yeah, that's right. There was so much world simulation going on that you would get these really intolerable micro stutters. So, like every sometimes, it would just freeze. It would sort of freeze. Sort of freeze is kind of the best way I can put it. Where like the time wouldn't progress and no one would move for like thirty seconds or something. You're just begging it to just keep going so you can play the damn game, but it would just sit there thinking about all the world stuff it had to simulate. But I say it's kind of frozen, because although time isn't progressing, and people cannot move, um, the leaves would still be blowing around, and the grass would still be swaying, and... Uh, you would still be snoring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So that was really frustrating. That was an unfortunate byproduct of, of being able to travel anywhere in your neighborhood without any loading screens, except for the very first one. But that didn't. That problem didn't occur until about halfway through the game's lifespan, or maybe a little bit longer. Yeah, initially it wasn't even. It didn't. It didn't really even come until like the until like the uh, third or so last expansion. And this, uh, because this game rendered, or because this game allowed you to visit anywhere in your neighborhood without loading screens, this was probably the very first game that made it really important to have a fast hard drive, because. Uh, you might have two sims in your family. One sim will be at home, and the other one will be at work. And if you click the one at work while you're looking at your home, the camera would sort of pan across the whole city, finally arriving at work. And if you didn't have a fast hard drive, then it couldn't really render all of the 
objects and buildings and locations and people that you should be seeing through all, all the way uh, over. So I would say like this and a massively multiplayer game were the main reasons why you would eventually want to buy a solid-state hard drive. That mm -hmm. ga that hardware is ideal. That's probably the most important hardware to have for The Sims 3. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it was... Uh, it, there were a lot of improvements, particularly in the NPCs. I had such trouble with the stinking nannies and the cleaners and the, and the maids when I... Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't praise the maids in Sims 3, but the nannies were much improved. I mentioned previously in Sims 2 that the nannies were a bunch of uh, incompetent old nannies who basically came to your house, shat on your floor, and then neglected the shit out of your kid, ate your food, and watched TV. Mm -hmm. In this one, they were young adults who came in. They actually took care of your kid. In fact, I think they did too good a job taking care of the kids because they put the kid, the fucking toddler, in the crib when the kid wasn't even tired. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, the kid didn't scream as much as it did in Sims 2. Oh, there was so much friggin' toddler <laughs> screaming in Sims 2. That would really tick me off when you were playing it next to me. <laughs> always crying. And because you were the super Casanova Sims 2 player, you would have four toddlers at the same time. Not my fault my Sims gave birth to triplets. I think it was. No, not in Sims 3. I, had, I didn't use cheats. Okay, well, pardon me. But you farted out a lot of children. Well, my Sims wanted kids, so... Oh, so? Give them lots. <laughs> so, but then the maids were still incompetent, but not that incompetent. Some were good, but some would just come to your house, walk around, pick up a couple of things, stand in the corner, tap their foot, look irritated, and leave and take your money. And they wouldn't have cleaned up. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Ah, uh, the, uh, what was what really nice is for, for uh, your wants, they got rid of fears, so you know, so if... Something unfortunate happened that was a fear. You no longer lost points or mood or got negative moodlets for having that happen. All right, why don't you refresh the audience's memory of what wants and fears were. Okay. In The Sims 2, you had wants. These were desires that you wanted to fulfill. And then you had fears, which are not many things you didn't want to happen. In Sims 3, you now had um, like just a couple of basic, uh, just a few basic wants. Three wants actually, and they all tied into your uh, your lifetime aspiration, and it could be something as simple as being like, entering a science career, being a, the uh, top athlete, or something really as obscure as uh, finding the mystical unicorn. If you think I'm kidding, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, and the thing, and unlike Sims Two, the reward that you got for accomplishing these wants were uh, actually passive that improved your sim itself. So, for example, you got observant, which made you more able to determine what a person's traits were, or you could get the meditative sleep, or trance, which lets you sleep longer, or you got something to reduce hunger. And then there is my favorite, steel bladder. Yeah. Basically, you never have to piss ever again. <laughs> you never pee or poo ever again, no matter how much you eat. That was kind of a... F I did they have grilled cheese aspiration in Sims 3? I forget. Was that no, just they two? didn't. That was too just bad. Sim. That would have been a fun one, where you eat an un unlimited number of grilled cheese sandwiches, but they never have to come out. Yeah. But you still puked if you ate too much. Aww. Another interesting good thing about Sims 3 was, no, you were no longer in cast. When you created the Sim, you had more sliders for every tiny feature. So it yeah. also meant that you, you no longer had skinny normal, and chubby. You now had anorexic, 
obese. Fifty Shades of Fat? Yeah. <laughs> and you also had boob and muscle sliders. Yay, boob sliders. Though that boob slider only had one setting, though, maximum. According to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you could at least, you could make your sim boob. You could adjust the size of your sims by easily. Of course, the first thing everyone does is they like is they make their sim as much as fast as they can and as much as the uh, disproportionate as they can. Oh, and when you do that, like when you do one of the sliders, does the sim like react to it? Like you get all you make a maximum fatness, and the sim looks down at their stomach, and they're like, oh, ho, ho, ho. And, and they're then, all jolly. Yeah, and they rub their hands over their stomach. It's really disturbing. <laughs> and what's interesting, and what's and then what's even more disturbing is that. Picking a skimpy outfit for one of the women, and then uh, changing the sliders between massively fat and massively skinny. And it's just how, it's like, ew, I think I will not be wearing that outfit anymore. <laughs> oh, while we're talking about create a sim and outfit, by the way, another feature that I loved about The Sims 3 that you could not do uh, before or since was that you could, there were different, like, swatches or colors or patterns associated with each piece of clothing or each object in the world, and you could kind of change them. Like, you could set them interchangeably. Like, a person's shirt might have three different swatches, like a color for the shirt, a color for the sleeves, and a color for the buttons, for example. You could take um, any, like, texture from the game, like uh, a shiny, shiny brushed metal or a rubber tire, and you could set that as the texture or color of... Like the shirt, if you wanted. You could wear a rubber shirt. And they would even have sliders for, like, the hue or the tone or uh, the color or all kinds of different things. So that was kind of fun when you you might pick, like, uh, a shirt, pants, and a hat, and they don't match at all. But you could customize the colors so that they look like a set. Or you could buy a bunch of different, like, kitchen appliances, and you like the color of one of them but not the other. And so you could copy the colors from one appliance and paste it onto the others. Mm -hmm. It was really easy to do and gave you a lot of creativity. So I kind of liked taking... I would buy, like, the super fanciest race car in the whole game that was, like, this shiny, uh, like, lollipop red uh, car, and I would take a texture from, like, a toddler's pajamas, which has little teddy bears and rocket ships on it, and I'd make, like, a linen, <laughs> a linen car. It was awesome. What was really nice about this, another great thing about this game, which wasn't, didn't occur in Sims 2 or Sims 4, but you still had aliens regardless, is the alien didn't abduct you! So, your poor men didn't end up pregnant with some mysterious growth in their, uh, man uterus. Well, yeah, we, we talked about, <laughs> we talked about alien butt rape, didn't we, in the last one? Yeah, but in this one, they actually... Man uterus. Well, where else is the kid going to hide I, in I, I, I'm sorry, I called attention to that. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but in this one, the aliens would come down and they would just walk around and look around at night. So if you were observant and you saw the uh, light come down, what you could do is send your sim out and actually go up and talk to the alien and befriend the aliens. So eventually to the point where you could uh, convince them to move in and fuck you. Mm -hmm. But basically, the aliens were completely inoffensive and, it's like, and just there as to observe your life form. And oh, that's right. They were like residents of one of the two base towns, right? The desert one? They weren't even Strangeville or whatever? What was it called? Oh, there was no Strangeville. This is... Sims 3 didn't... Oh, didn't uh, no, but it had a desert town, didn't it? And yeah. it had aliens in it? And it was called something. I forget what that place was called. Me too. I only played Twin Works and Riverview and... 
Yeah, I never played the Desert One. In fact, I don't even think there's. A, I don't remember a Desert One, but whatever. There was. I don't. I whatever. But then moving into the expansions, so basically the base game was fun, but there were no swimming pools, no jacuzzis, and a whole lot of no nothings. You no know, no swimming pools in Sims Three, base game. I thought there were. Uh, no, they added those later. I think. Really? Yeah. Oh. I don't remember. I never used them anyway. Me neither. But, uh, of course, the first thing I do with Sims is I make myself, and then the next thing I do is I make my insane asylum, and I uh, torment these people. Because <laughs> you could pick traits from uh, the pull-downs. Oh, yeah, this was new. Yeah, your traits. So there was, like, all sorts of fun stuff, stuff that was either negative or positive. So your Sim wasn't necessarily a good person, but wasn't a bad person. They could just be, like, a, a, a lethargic slob. <laughs> Yeah, right, or like an insane hydrophobe who was afraid of showering. Yeah, an insane hydrophobe who was afraid of showering, who uh, didn't like technology. Oh, that was the best one, the Luddite, or what was it called, technophobe? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a funny one. Oh, I have such funny memories of uh, Bianca playing one of her insane asylum houses, which was she would pick a whole bunch of people with like contrasting personalities. But the one thing that everybody except one person had in common, was watching television. And there was one guy who was the technophobe. So every time he would walk past any technology, he would, like, yell at it. So he would keep keep yelling at the television. He would walk past and disapprovingly scream at the television while everybody else was watching it. And, like, when it broke, he would cheer, and that was great. And he even broke the television once. Oh, did he break it on purpose? Oh, yeah, if they don't like it, they'll break it on purpose. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I remember The Sims uh, kicking over uh, lawn gnomes. Garden gnomes. Which is why I didn't put any of down in the uh, subsequent games. I know, it's a full-time job picking up garden gnomes. It's bad enough I have to pick up my trash can. I'm not picking up fucking garden gnomes again. That's right. But yeah, the first expansion, which was probably one of the best ones for this game, was the World Adventures. Oh, and uh, Lazy Game Reviews, this was his least favorite expansion. I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. This was such a good expansion that it felt like a whole new game on top of the existing game. Oh, I know. I thought it was brilliant. And I love that they... That uh, Max has captured the essence of these three locations pretty nicely, so it really felt like he went to a different location, and he felt like it was a vacation too. Mm-hmm. So, world adventures. What were the three locations? Let's see. Those were Shang Simla, which was supposed to be like a representation of China, El Simhara, Egypt, and uh, Champs les Sims, which was our French destination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think my favorite one was well, I liked Egypt. Yeah, I think I like that one the best, too. Although the Chinese location had beautiful... It was just beautiful. Oh, that might be my favorite. The French one was uh, was great if you if you wanted more social aspects because it was more of an uh, urban environment. Mm-hmm. Urban and, uh, like, provincial uh, and uh, rural. Yeah, they had the uh, wine, and you could go stomp grapes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could make your own wines, and you could become a wine connoisseur. Yes. I, I really enjoyed the wine thing, actually, because you would drink your... It was uh, nectar, not wine, of right? Of course, nectar. <laughs> so you would drink some nectar, and it would say, like, ooh, ne- nectar is yummy. And then uh, you would drink, like, five more bottles, of, or after you've had five bottles of la- wine in your life or whatever, nectar in your life, you would start to say, I like the red one better. And you would uh, drink, like, ten more bottles of nectar in your life, and you would say something like, oh, it has such uh, subtle floral undertones. So you had this, like, hidden progress bar of how knowledgeable you were about nectar. Yep. And th- th- this, this is a, a real hallmark of The Sims. 
it's a game that's all about progress bars, but some of them are shown and some of them are hidden. Yeah, and it's kind of a it's char- charming when you figure out that you're getting better at something that you weren't expecting. Yeah, in fact, this is something that was more prevalent in Sims Three with the hidden traits, and often they'd be cultural. So, for example, if you had a sim and you're from your regu- from your regular sim from your set regular sim town, bring in a uh, sim from one of the uh, foreign places, marry and have children. The children would inherit your sim the uh, foreign traits, so they would automatically know how to sing the songs and do the gestures. Oh, that's right. And um, it would be like a combination of the traits of the parents, wouldn't it? Yeah. Like the behavioral traits, mm-hmm. which sometimes works out great and sometimes works out terribly. Yeah. For example, let's say when your parents was a fireman, you would mix the child would naturally be heroic. If they were a thief, they'd be... Uh, Evil or something. Yeah. There was just so many interesting ways that these hidden traits would come out, especially the cultural ones. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun uh, look into genetics. Mm-hmm. And it and it seems and it added just a little bit of depth to your Sims were So that way, if you had uh, a bi, if you had a uh, inter, if you had a biracial child, they would not be the same as the. It would really stand out because they would have hidden traits that weren't apparent in the children native to the region. Oh, yeah, but I don't think their skin color would be between two skin colors. Would no, it wouldn't. The skin color wouldn't necessarily be between. Usually be one or the other. It's usually one or the other, but the hair might be one from one parent, the skin color might be from the other. So you got some interesting uh, looks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and of course, they're the insufferable mummies, so if you weren't careful, you either got beaten up or uh, a mummy curse. Oh, right, in Egypt. Yeah, that's right. You could actually be, you could get a mummy curse, which was well. I guess before we talk about that, we should talk about the dungeons. Oh yes, the dungeons. Oh, should I take this one? Go right ahead. Okay, so this is something that was brand new to the Sims series. The Sims, you know, essentially at its essence is a game that simulates human behavior and modern life and stuff like that. But uh, when you go on vacation, um, first of all, there are, you can optionally do adventures or quests on your vacation, and this was kind of borrowed from the Sims Stories games. Um, there would be a notice board outside of your hostel, or what was the original place called? The base camp. Yeah. There would be a notice board that if you wanted to, if you wanted to spend your vacation just like going to coffee shops and reading books and learning new recipes and seeing the sights and taking pictures, you can do that. But. Hmm? But if you did that and nothing else, you could only stay for a limited amount of time. Although there was traits to allow you to extend it, but not by much. In order to really extend it, you had to do these quests. That's right. So you could optionally, if you wanted to, go to this like uh, notice board, or adventure board it was called, I think. And it would say, this person needs a favor. Go talk to this person and they'll compensate you for the favor. Very much like a World of Warcraft quest. So you would go and you would talk to that person. And that person might say, oh, I left... I, I heard about this uh, nice treasure down in uh, a, a secret dungeon that's underneath this winery. Could you go and take a look? And so you go to the winery and you go downstairs and uh, there's uh, uh, you, you notice in the basement of this winery that there's one wall that looks different from the other walls. And so you click the wall and you investigate the wall and you kind of pat it a little bit and you say, oh, you just discovered a secret door. And you push the secret door and it takes you into this big kind of labyrinthian uh, dungeon maze that's full of traps and uh, puzzles. And so you would walk through the maze, you would um, disarm traps, and the dis- there were like steam traps and fire traps and lightning traps. Um, there were... Um, 
movable statues and oh, yeah. pressure pads. That's right. So sometimes you would step on a pad on the floor and it would open a door. Sometimes when you got off the pad, the door would close again, so you would have to find a big statue and shove it onto the pad to keep the door open. Um, there were treasures all over the place. There were, like, treasure coins, which you could spend while you are on vacation for different uh, uh, rewards. And some of those rewards were, like, uh, food that never goes stale um, that you can keep in your pocket for when you're down in a dungeon and you don't want to have to worry about cooking. There were uh, tents. Super tent! Yeah, there were, like, increasingly nice, lavish tents where you could sleep mm-hmm. indoors, or you could uh, take it with you. You never had to go home. You could uh, go to work. You could work all day and then set up a tent outside of your work and sleep there <laughs> and then eat your food that doesn't expire, mm-hmm. wake up and go right back to work. Yeah. So you could use that stuff when you're back in the regular city. Yeah. The only drawback with the tents was if you were in a very narrow area, you couldn't, if you, and you're really tired and exhausted, you couldn't just set your tent down. You had to go find a more, a, a more open area. So for me, I actually wound up carrying a sleeping bag, which could be placed in mm. the narrow corridors. That's right. The more, uh, the, the, the more expensive... Rare tents, um, where they you would sleep better, you would have a better sleep in less time. But the better the tent was, the taller it was. And if you were inside a cave or something like that, the tent might be too big to set up indoors. So you would have to use a crappier tent. Or if you didn't have a crappier tent, you'd have to walk all the way out again and sleep somewhere, and then go all the way back in. So the point of the dungeons anyway was to progress until you get to the end, solving all these different puzzles and doing uh uh doing puzzles with levers and switches and disarming traps. Um, sometimes in, like, the Metroidvania style, you would there would be these ultimate treasures, which would be, like, a huge staff that breaks gigantic rocks. And uh, you get that from China. But uh, maybe you didn't go to China first. Maybe you're in uh, France, and you came across a dungeon that had an optional area that was behind a huge boulder, and you couldn't break it. You had to go and do that other humongous... Uh, major quest line or whatever, major dungeon um, in China first to get that object, and then it allowed you to uh, get past that obstacle in all the dungeons where you would find one. I had so much trouble with that. Eventually I got you to help me with that because I just couldn't figure it out. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I think it's because you can explore these dungeons on your own if you want. It's pretty easy. There's like 10 or 20 dungeons or so in each of these vacation spots, and you can just go find them on your own. Or if you're doing the quest lines, which I would recommend because you get rewards for them and it gives some structure to it, then you do those uh, dungeons one after the other. And sometimes you'll find a key for one dungeon in another dungeon, so the quests steer you in the right direction so that you do things in the order that's intended. Yeah. So the dungeons themselves, they're a completely different kind of gameplay that you would find in The Sims otherwise, but um, it expands upon the uh, other ways to play the game, like... um, while you're pushing a uh, statue around, if you don't have a lot of strength, then it makes you more tired and you have to sleep sooner. So it's advantageous to be in good physical condition before you do these dungeons. Or, However, it does contribute to your athleticism. Yeah, that's right. You actually exercise by shoving things around and by doing these heroic things inside the dungeons. Or um, you have to hold your breath if you want to, like jump into a body of water. Sometimes there's, like, underwater tunnels, so you jump into the water and you can uh, go into other areas. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, basically, it's just a very different mode of gameplay that's right inside The Sims, and you can have the characters that you've grown attached to and love do all these cool, heroic 
things. Yeah, so if you're normally a big uh, chicken in life and don't want to risk your own uh, skin, you create yourself and you send yourself to Egypt and you watch it and then you can live vicariously. Yeah, there you go. Wish fulfillment. <laughs> so that's what I'll say. That's all I'll say about the dungeons. But yeah. I'm very surprised that LGR didn't enjoy that expansion. It's totally different from anything else mm-hmm. that The Sims has ever offered. Yeah. But it's I find it extremely enjoyable, and it's really refreshing to have the option to do that. If you're ever in the mood for that kind of a gameplay, just go on vacation. And I think the rest of the world that you came from is paused while you're on vacation, right? I don't think you age or anything. No. You don't age in on vacation in Sims 3, but you do in Sims 4. Right. But it's nice, you're, you're basically your your job pause, nobody's going to harass you. And it, But the only real drawback is, if you're in a multiple-person household, it's just not the kind of thing you can really take multiple people on. It's a solo adventure. Right, if you're going to do the dungeons. But if you're going on vacation, you can do that with other people. Yeah. Yeah, what you re- the idea is if you have one person who's like good at, who can stay a really long time, you have that person book the vacation, and then that way you can drag the whole family along for good fashion family fun. Oh right, because with I mentioned before the adventure board where you get those quests, you um, if you do enough of the quests, you start getting experience points, which um, allow you to upgrade your travel visa for that location. So the travel visa enables you to stay longer. Yeah. There's three travel visa levels. Shit. <laughs> and whatever. And basically, once you get to three, you're, like, super welcome. Everyone loves you. and You can you. stay for, like, three weeks or something, right? Yep. And you get massive discounts. So. But then you have to go back and do your job. Jobs suck. But speaking of jobs, some people are more ambitious than others and have ambitions. <laughs> Oh, yeah? And what's the next expansion called you're talking about? Oh, I believe it would be Ambitions. Oh, you don't freaking say. <laughs> what, not, what I liked about this one is I, I don't necessarily like sending my sim out to work when they're miserable. So I'm like, oh, I can work from home now. woo So you could, in this case, what I did was I would send my sim to City Hall and register as a writer, which was even better for teenagers. If you needed a part-time job and your kid was competent in either writing or art, you just send the kid to City Hall, have them register, and they could do this in their spare time. All right, those were professions? Yeah, this was... No, these were self-employment. Oh, okay. The professions were uh, um, architectural design, firefighter, and ghost hunter, investigator, and stylist. Right, right. Where you actually went on location and carried out uh, certain tasks. Oh, yeah, but you could work at home as a writer or a painter or a fisherman or something. Or a gardener. Right. So you could do the hobbies that you were doing anyway, but and then sell fact, your things. One of the mu- in fact, as we mentioned for the previous expansion, there was nectar making, and you could actually become a professional nectar maker. Oh, yeah, that's right. Where you spend all day stepping on tiny fruit. Mm-hmm. Or, as we like to do, the chair mines. You can actually be a professional sculptor and make chairs all day. If you were good enough, your chairs would become more increasingly valuable. Oh, yeah, you could, like, make chairs. You could chisel chairs out of ice that never melts. That looked amazing, actually. If you had a whole house with uh, unmelting ice furniture, (laughs) that looked really cool. But you basically put yourself. That's why we call it the chair mines, because you're just one sim named after someone we knew. You spend all day hammering. (laughs) <laughs> and let me tell you, if your girlfriend or wife is playing The Sims and is as a sculptor, then you're going to hear hammering out of your left ear all day. Hammer, hammer, hammer. <laughs> yep, and that's how you make money. Oh, and if you're real lucky, she'll play the game on fast forward, 
So you hear fast hammering. <laughs> yeah, all day. It's great. This is this is the expansion that also introduced meteor deaths, which I found out the really hard way. I had just created this great sim. It was my first new sim in a long time. Great sim. I had her on a good life start. Had her sit outside, and two days after I created her and got her going in her job, boom, meteor on the head. I was devastated. Was well, that when you're daydreaming or something? Is it meteor or satellite? Meteor. Oh, brother. Yeah. Is that when you're daydreaming or looking through a telescope or no, something? No, that's just when you're lying on the ground looking at stars. Oh, and there's, a, there's like a half a percent chance or something that a meteor is going to land right on you? Yep. That's lovely. The other thing is, if you if you are using cheats, you can actually make earthquakes happen. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep, me neither. I was just I was re- I was looking up a couple of things about death, and they found out and I found out about earthquakes. But you have to use in-game cheats for that. Speaking of looking at meteors, you could also look at meteors as part of your date and lie on the lawn together, which is actually what I was doing at the time. I had a late night date with somebody. Oh, can you guess what late night is? Oh yeah, next expansion. <laughs> oh. And then this, unfortunately, was probably one of my least favorite expansions because it introduced the celebrity system. Careful, this is. Oh yeah, it's, this is this system also contributed to those hidden hereditary traits that we were talking about earlier. So if your if one if one or both of your parents had five uh, had a few stars, particularly five stars, the kid automatically inherited the stars. So Not all of them. Some of them, I thought. Um, actually, you inherited three stars by default if your parents had five. Mm-hmm. So, the poor kid, we trying to go to school and be followed by the paparazzi. Right. So, yeah, that was weird. You'd, you'd be anywhere doing anything. You could be on another, uh, you could be in a vacation area. You could be, you, like, going to it, walking to an outhouse. And there would be paparazzi following you around, taking pictures of you. It was kind of gross. Yeah, it was really weird to see, have them, them following you around on your vacation in El Simhara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you could be in the middle of the desert, and they'd be, they'd still be uh, following you, snapping pictures, no matter what you do. Yeah, this would, that was, I really didn't like that. But the only good thing about the five-star system was, if you wanted to make a living as a, as a musician who lived off tips, if you were famous, all you did was stand outside the theater and strum your guitar for eight hours, and you could make a couple of thousand dollars quite easily. Yeah, that's right. Those became the most... There were some weird ways to make a heck of a lot of money, and my favorite, I think, was... The part-time job. Because there were part-time jobs in Sims 2 as well, weren't there? For yes. teens, at least? Yeah. And they never really amounted to much. I think they could level up in them once or twice, or like get promoted once or twice, mm-hmm. and I mean, that was it. But in this one, if you didn't leave your part-time job, you could keep it forever. That's right. And um, so in Sims... And you could even apply for them. For example, you could work at the spa part-time... Oh, yeah, that's right. Or the grocery store and the bookstore. There were different ones. But then if you stay in it for a long time, then... Uh, you get a it, it, when you run out of promotions, then you can get a raise if your performance is consistently good, and that can happen like twenty or thirty times or so over a lifespan of a sim, it's, and it gets to the point where your part-time job, which takes up like one fifth the amount of time that a career would take, pays better than any career ever could. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of neat. So you're like multi-million-dollar uh, shopping cart returner. <laughs> the, the other nice thing about this one was. If you ha- uh, was uh, it actually introduced uh, more places for woohoo if you had the lifetime want to do it with five different people in five different places. So I never fulfilled it, but it was interesting if you had a date and you needed to get and you wanted to fulfill all your wants very quickly. Mm-hmm. But for- and fortunately, there is no Mrs. Crumblebottom in this one. Oh yeah, that's right. 
There's no crotchety old woman to come around and smack you while you and your date were woohooing, hopefully trying to make kids and create the next generation. Oh, although if you were famous and you did anything anywhere, there's a chance that someone would start a rumor about you. Yep. Like, you, whether it was true or not, they might say, oh, you peed yourself in public, and then you're, uh... And then, um, when you're famous, you end up meeting a whole lot of people. Oh, well, this is weird. This is a weird part yeah. of being famous. It was that you would meet a whole lot of people, they would come up to you for an autograph or something like that, yeah. or especially if you played, uh... If you were played an instrument, and oh, you played for Oh, you had so many somewhere. friends. Basically, you could make friends without trying. You don't even talk to them. You just play the you play the guitar, and they give you a hundred dollars for it, and you're friends for life. <laughs> and the the downshot of that was that, uh, like twenty years later, you start getting three phone calls a day saying some guy you've never heard of is on his deathbed. You better visit him while you have the chance. And this is some guy that gave you like a thirty-five cent tip for playing the the uh, guitar in the subway. Five years, ten years ago. Yeah, twenty years ago. But yeah, and then these were the the same thing is uh, actually I'll mention it when I talk about another expansion. But when I said when I said making the next generation, we can also talk about generations, which is our next expansion. Mm -hmm. Which this is a good expansion for me because I like to I uh, because my Sims tend to have at least one or two children, and this was the one that introduced more uh, kid friendly stuff. And for your benefit, it also introduced sports boarding school, so if you were, <laughs> like Brian and you hate having your uh, Sims progeny run around uh, wantonly, you would just send them off to boarding school, and then when they became a teenager, you got the choice to uh, bring them home, or to uh, send them back out to the world to fend for themselves again. That's right. Oh, and this was the expansion that added teenagers as an age, right? No, it didn't. It, uh, it, it added just, what? Children? Or did it add any age? No, it didn't add any age. Just it, activities? It just added more activities. Huh. And it also, uh, which meant that it also added um, after-school activities, ballet and scouts, which are open to both genders. Mm -hmm. And those actually contributed to uh, lifetime happiness. You got badges, and it also gave you more skills. So, eight, so now, so we're in The Sims two. Oh no, that's Sims one. So it contributed to your skills. So if you were doing these after-school activities, I think scouts or. Uh, Ballet, you got it contributed to uh, your uh, life, your uh, eventual adult skills, and then as a teenager, you had more options. And in fact, there were different clubs, and these also contributed to your skills passively. So you never actually had to tell your kids to do anything. You, your kid would just do these after-school activities, and they would increase their music, their or their athleticism, or there was even a homework club which made them do homework without ever having to be at home, mm. and it made them do it faster, and so they were better at homework. Mm -hmm. And these come and, they, and uh, you can only be in the Sim Two Club because they occurred on certain days during the week, and so either the parent or the kid could enroll in them. So I did this because it was a good way to passively get teenage my my kids' skills, the ones I basically neglected aside from food and, and shelter. Mm -hmm. and I, I had a house with uh, six kids. I'm going. I'm not controlling all these. You all go to club and do something. You, you don't go to club. You go have a job. Yeah. But, and for adults, there was something fun called Midlife Crisis, and it lasted for seven days. Oh, that's right. Oh, there were a few of these sorts of things at different ages, weren't there? There was, like, teen rebelliousness or something? Yep. Why don't you describe the Midlife Crisis? These are kind of funny. Yeah, this, was, this could occur at any point after young adult. So you could either be close to, the, to being an older or just, made, or just become an adult. Usually when you just become an adult, you get a Midlife Crisis. It's not a negative or positive mood net. It would just be there. 
but you had to fulfill the wants in order to avoid the negative repercussions. And once you took a uh, an optional want in the top of the choices, you had to fulfill it. You could dismiss it if you didn't want to do it, but you but if you took it, you had to fulfill it. And if you didn't, you suffered a negative mood for it. And if you didn't fulfill any, you ultimately were felt unfulfilled, and you had a and you were suffering a massive uh, downer. You might as well. You're a regular Debbie Downer at that point. But if you fulfilled your uh, wants, you actually were quite happy and satisfied. So as long as you fulfilled one, you weren't depressed. Oh, so do you remember examples of any of the midlife crisis objectives? Uh, most of mine surrounded changing your outfit, changing hairstyles, getting tattoos, buying various possessions. Yeah, buying a car is the one I remember. Yep. Changing your job. Mm-hmm. And then I had a sim who wanted another kid at this point. She had already had her kids were all teenagers. And so she wanted a baby. Ah. So I wound up with uh, twins at this point. It probably depends on your traits, I guess. Yeah. I probably picked, uh, I think I picked as a trait... Um, Hates children. Money or something, wasn't that one? Mm-hmm. Ambitious or whatever. So just because that was the easy, that was the one that had the uh, incremental objectives that I was most likely to do anyway, like get promoted my job or make a certain amount of money. So I probably didn't get all of the midlife crisis stuff that uh, I could have. Yeah, but it was pretty interesting because at least it uh, certainly shook things up. But if you uh, got a, uh, if you were feeling, if you got a teenage, if you were moody as a teenager, and you took an objective, you could always, you could uh, always dismiss it if you didn't want to carry it out, and you could always get rid of wants you didn't want to do if if there was something else. All right. So with the teenager one, was this the one where you would like get an overwhelming urge to sneak out of the house or something and break curfew? Break curfew, pull pranks. Disobey your parents, just all this other uh, usual bratty stuff. Mm-hmm. But some teens were more likely to be caught than others if you had um, certain traits. Yeah. For example, uh, mischievous or uh, playful tend to not get caught, whereas the other ones would get caught. Oh. I had a sim who would poo while he was trying. Oh yeah, I'm like three door. I'm like three houses away from my house, walk trying to get home in time for curfew. The cop pulls up, takes my kid, tells him in the car brings me home and I'm like right I'm pretty much right in front of my house mm-hmm. I'm like and then and I get in the, and I get in a heap of trouble. And the only and but your parent, and what's really surprised me is if your kid had a great relationship with the parent, the parent gets really pissed and you lose your friendship with them. You have to earn it back with housework. I'm, I'm like, I don't want to earn back house I don't want to do housework. Housework is stupid That was always an interesting dynamic in house in uh, families as well. Was that you had a relationship like as a slider from positive to neutral to negative. With the people in your family. So you could have a parent. We could have one parent as your best friend and the other one is your worst, de- like your nemesis. That was always an interesting aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, just noticing the time. How many expansions do we have left? One, uh, two, three, four. A few. Uh, these are just my notes. And then Sims 4. We have seven more expansions? Yeah, it's just long. It's, well, I, we, can, we can shorten this. Okay, let's gloss over them. Let's spend like a minute on each expansion and talk about the main thing. If, and then we'll hold off on Sims 4 until another time? Um, there's not that much to talk about with Sims 4, but... True, okay. Yeah. Let's see, then of course pets. I didn't really get that much into it, but what's, what was interesting about this one is that it introduced um, the Lifetime Want to Find a Unicorn. I never took this, exp- this, uh, this aspiration because I thought this would be impossible. Of course, what do I find? I find a fucking unicorn. Mm. But to be friendly, unicorn, you have to be very careful because they were extremely skittish. 
Yeah, that's right. Part of that expansion was like approaching wild animals and not scaring them and not getting beat up by them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you could also have your cat, dogs, birds. You could capture birds, or you could have a parrot. You could also have a horse. And what was fun about the horse is you could stable it or bring it to your house, stable it at your house, and then you could enter into competitions and you had a riding skill. Yeah, except you didn't have jobs for pets anymore like you could in Sims 2, because yeah. that was always fun. Yeah. Sending your, your cat to work and it would walk out the door and come back far, five hours later. With a uh, paw full of cash. Yeah, paw full. Mm-hmm. Showtime was the next one. Once again, one I didn't play too much, so it wasn't as interesting. But what I did like about it was the uh, professions were kind of fun at first. Acrobat, magician, and uh, vocal. So if you had a, vo- a vocalist, but uh, kind of, you kind of sounded like a lounge crooner. You just you sang. You, basically, she's your sing. Your sim sung in Simlish, and in order to start, in order to get to the top of, the, of this particular track, you started out as a songogram sim. You basically were as a what? Sing a gram or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. You had to bring. Sing, you had to be. You had to go. You had to go sing messages to people. It was really weird and just right. kind of disturbing. For the others, you, you did kind of need like just street street sight that basically buskering. Mm-hmm. One that we definitely skipped it was that that did not strike our fancy at all was supernatural, and I mean we already had trouble with the vampires and the uh, paparazzi system from uh, late night. Mm-hmm. We did not want any more weird supernatural stuff. I mean the aliens because the aliens were inoffensive they didn't bother us but <laughs> I didn't want a bunch of fairies floating around or witches and it's just, nothing in this particular yeah thing. werewolves and stuff like that mm-hmm. it's not why we play the game. But the good, the next one, which was actually quite good, and I and I love it, cause, and I hope that they do it this for Sims Four with seasons. But oh, they will! I guarantee. You. Yeah. <coughs> I like this one because I could turn off winter. Winter was my least favorite season. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, right. So, um, by default, it's like always summer in the Sims until they sell you the seasons expansion pack, and then it adds four seasons. Mm-hmm. And in Sims Three. You had sliders that allowed you to choose how long each season was. You could change the order of the seasons, so you could have like three summers and a, and a spring. Yeah. Stuff but, like that. Yeah. What I, my main reason for not liking winter was because it got to the point where I was, like, it would just, if I had like no school for seven days in a row, my sims and I, my sims were about to age up and I couldn't, and I wasn't going to get to pick my trait. Yeah, there were different activities per season. Mm-hmm. Those were interesting. I never figured out how to do trick or treating, and then there's the fe- mm. and then there was the summer and winter festivals, which were always fun. Mm-hmm. And this, all the fest, all, every season had a festival. Pie eating, go gorge yourself on food. Oh yeah. And of course, no game is complete without the university. Yeah, I've always well, I think I liked I liked university in Sims Two a lot. I didn't like it that much in Sims Three. I found it very hectic. Yeah. In fact, this one was a lot more unforgiving, and I didn't realize this until I, and, and uh, first of all, I tried to play it the way I played the original, the first time I played The Sims at University, and it's a completely different mechanic. Like, you can't just study and then be done with it. It's, you, they, it's an ongoing activity. So you had to study, go to class, do all the hands-on, and then you had your exam. And if you didn't study regularly, your actual progress went down. And so you didn't do well if you kept if you only uh, did the bare minimum, which you would, which was the equivalent of what they had in Sims Two University. 
Yeah, that's right. I remember you could choose how much of a course load you wanted or how many uh, credits you wanted to finish in a semester, and if you wanted to do a full course load, you were busy 100% of the time. There was no time for fun. You could barely keep yourself fed and washed. Mm -hmm. But uh, what was not, what I did like was before you you could uh, deter, you could get the grants to pay for it by doing the aptitude test on your teenager or your young adult. And then uh, these tests would determine how much money you get from the school, and these tests were in, were tied directly to your actual skill level. Mm -hmm. And so, if and then it would determine what uh, what programs you got your actual uh, grants for. Oh right. So if you do well ac academically, or you had some uh, refined hobbies like painting or writing or something, then you could get like a bursary, and they would give you a bunch of money. Yeah. For example, for painting and writing, you could go into communications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This was also this one. This game also had a couple of interesting death styles. I never saw them, but I kind of wish I did. One of them was death by Murphy bed. So the, the bed collapsed on you. Oh, that's awesome! I would love to see that. <laughs> yeah. And if you and uh, you could get death by ranting if you ranted against death during a protest. It's that that's that's the other thing. It introduced that protest in this one, so you could rant against death, mm -hmm. and then death would come and kill you. <laughs> that's cool. Or you could die because a vending machine fell on you. Oh, beautiful. But the good news is, you could always take a break between semesters and go visit your island paradise. Mm-hmm. Oh, this expansion added so many problems. I think this is the one that really added the latency. Very badly, yeah, the micro-stutters. I did manage to get a hotel, a five-star hotel up and running, except it was a cluttered piece of shit, and it was so messy. That was another kind of tycoon-style minigame, metagame. Yeah. And, uh... But what I did like about this was the houseboats, because you could pretty much you buy a boat, and if you didn't like your neighbor, you can look up, just pull up the anchor, and sail away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you could also, and then this one, this one did have another. Uh... <laughs> Stop emailing me, Domino's. I hate you. <laughs> this one did have another kind of supernatural element: the mermaid. Mermaid was kind of fun. I, I'm like, okay, gotta, gotta make my Simon Mermaid. And you could actually come on men and everything. It was basically Ariel's dream. Mm -hmm. without, without, and uh, no Ursula. So you could be a mermaid and then uh, come on land. The only problem was that you could get dehydrated and kill yourself if you didn't drink. Uh. You could also scuba dive, and if you weren't skilled enough, you could die by drowning. I like the scuba diving. That was a, a fun exploration mechanism. And I like the, the houseboats, too. Mm -hmm. I loved my houseboat. There were like arch archipelagos with a bunch of different islands you could visit, and so uh, if you didn't have a boat or you didn't want to use one, there were like boat taxis that would take you from one place to another. It's pretty nice, fun. Yeah, but what was nice about the houseboat is it allowed you to explore and find all the hidden islands and all the hidden coves that had more options for exploring. Oh, for deep sea diving, yeah. Yep, and, and then of course there were also sharks that could kill you. That's right, but I never got too far in this expansion because... I don't know if it was a bug with the island or with the gameplay or what, but the micro-stutters were just unbearable. Mm -hmm. You'd take three steps, and you would wait for five seconds. You'd take three more steps and wait for five seconds. And this would go on forever. It was just totally unbearable. Mm -hmm. This was, I guess they were just stretching the engine farther than it was meant to go. I don't know. It was a real shame. It was infuriating. Mm -hmm. And then we go into the future. Into the future. This is the last expansion. And this was kind of interesting. This was this was a little bit like that that stupid movie we watched last night. What was oh, yeah. the movie we watched last night? Parallels. Yeah, parallels. 
Why don't you want to give a synopsis of the movie, and then we'll talk about how it relates to this uh, last expansion? So you got three protagonists, and uh, what? And two of the protagonists have been given a cryptic message from their father to go to this address at this time. So they they can't figure out the. So they stop by the. They are in the house before they figure out where they have to go. They get the back. They get the father's jump bag, which is basically a bag if it's ready to go. If you have to leave town quickly, and they go to this location. It's a building, a big, bad, king, empty building in, in the middle of downtown Chicago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. They go into the building with their friend. They're looking around. There's all these cryptic messages about Earth. Oh, it was Kansas, wasn't it? No, they're in Akron, Ohio. Yeah, Akron, Ohio. That was it. That's Chicago. Oh. But they kept telling the people they were from Kansas. Ah, uh, okay. All right, anyway. So basically, it's... About these different Earths, but they're all in the same place at the same time. It's just a different result. One, it's just basically one dystopian, one utopian, and there's their uh, everything in between. Mm-hmm. That's what basically into the future is. You have your the regular future, your dystopian future, and your right in your uh, utopian future. And it all depends on what you can do because you can or the normal future. Yeah. It all depends on what you yourself do. Um, to get, for I actually, of course, had to figure out how to do. I figured out how to uh, get both features. So I'm like, I want to see what the destroyed one looks like, and it really does look different. It's not as sunny. It's kind of polluted looking, and you get this by by engaging in scaremongering in the present. Mm. But what's really fun is going into the future and getting your lottery numbers. That's right. Oh yeah, that's. I, I just remembered. If you want to create the the bad future, you can like run around your city littering. Yep, and then you uh, warn people about all this bad stuff that's gonna happen. Mm. They make them do all this bad. Make them do stuff to make it a dystopian future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So basically, the future looks the same no matter what different uh, like parallel uh, timeline you follow, whether it's the good, the bad, or the normal. But like, the buildings are all the same, and they look, they're look they in the same place. They sort of look the same, but the dystopian future, everything is kind of wrecked and gray and smoggy, and in the normal future, everything looks kind of realistic and concrete and uh, advanced. And then there's the utopian future, where there's, like, beautiful green grass and blue waters and rainbows all over the place and fireworks for no reason, and everybody's extremely happy. It's it's very creative. It's funny. Yeah. And depending on what you do, there's even sculptures of you in like this legacy park. It's kind of disturbing. Oh, yeah, that's right. Depending on how many... You can kind of travel freely between the future and the present. And so depending on the different deeds that you commit in the present, they'll build a statue of you with uh, like different embellishments. Mm-hmm. That, that's a fun thing. Yeah. It's also fun to figure out who your descendants are and see how much they look like you. Yeah, yeah, you can do the... the the Back to the Future 2 thing, where you can visit your own descendants and spy on them, and meet, like, you can meet them and get them fed up with you and stuff. <laughs> so, I guess we can quickly talk about Sims 4. Okay, let's very quickly talk about Sims 4, okay? Yeah, because there's not much to it. They uh, they got rid of the completely open-world concept in it, which, uh, which got rid of all the stutters. There are loading screens, but not as... But it's like a loading screen. That's it. It's pretty, and it's pretty fast still. Well, it's kind of halfway between Sims Two and Sims Three, where you can, if you go to, if you in your house, you can like look around your house, and you can walk around your neighborhood. But if you want to go into somebody else's house, then there's another loading screen. No, but, there's no, then no, no, you have to knock, and then you, then it opens up. Isn't there a loading screen? 
if you go out of your neighborhood, there is. Okay. But if you're in your neighborhood, you just knock, and then they, then the uh, then the fog of war lifts from the house. Okay, it's a huge step back from the freedom of Sims Three, but without the bugs, so take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. It just so it, the without the it's, without the nightclubs. I'm actually don't mind that I'm limited in this respect. Yeah, it's okay. It still discourages you from traveling though, because you know you'll have to face a short loading screen. If, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Eh, but if you have to travel, at least. The places to travel to are, uh, you can pick, they're easy to uh, pick off of the map. And it doesn't matter where you go, you only have the one loading screen. You don't have like a million loading screens that each take their own amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really bad about this one is they originally they had no family tree, which was bad for, for the uh, legacy simmers, people who played, played, on the, played the legacy challenge. Oh, which is to have as many generations as possible? And develop a deep family tree, is that it? Mm-hmm. And to have the same house over the generations, it keeps getting better? Yep. So Max, so basically EA or Max's server is, is EA now, responded and restored it as a big patch update. And I was like, why didn't you just put it in in the first mm. place? And they've actually added a lot of free, free content via patches. At first it seemed like they were just responding to criticism, but now they're kind of adding a lot of features that we would expect from an expansion, which is kind of nice. I can't mm-hmm. think of any examples. They added hot tubs, I guess. They added I don't no know. hot tubs were in uh, luxuries or in a lu- or in a oh, luxury really? expansion. All yeah. right, well, never mind. They they are being they add the generous. pools without the without an expansion. Oh yeah, they're being fairly generous. But yeah, they had a couple of they, they do have two expansions. I'm they have outdoor retreat, which is basically you travel and it's base it's your North American woods camping stuff. Not very exciting. It's okay. I'm not terribly crazy about it. And unlike other ones, you actually time does pass when you're uh, tr- when you're on vacation in this one. That's right. But this expansion was only ten bucks or something, wasn't it? Or yeah. Twenty or fifteen. It was cheaper than the expansions usually are. Yeah. But I did like their uh, their their version of ambitions, which is called Get to Work. You actually go with your sim to work, which is what we've wanted for so long. Right. Which they did to some extent in Sims Three. With the. Uh, you could be a private investigator or a fireman or a. Or a Ghostbuster. Yeah, but this one had, but this one is actually you are actually at a job with an actual title, and it's not as free form as those. It's far more structured, like an actual job. Yeah, it's quite fun. Unfortunately, uh, what I uh, it also meant that it brought back old school aliens. Yeah. So you're so. I'm minding my own business. My Sims being all sciencey and being a good boy. He's doing all his experiments and getting progress, and all of a sudden, <laughs> alien comes along and slurps him right up. Mm, you got a butt baby. Yeah, he's a uh, he. Then he then he comes back. He said, and he had this odd weight gain and abnormal growth. Turns out it's a butt baby. Butt baby. The good thing with these with them is you can send them back to their home world. That's right. Oh, we we didn't talk about the major difference in Sims Four, which is the moods. Oh yeah, the moods are great. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I don't really like so, it that much. It's instead of a bunch of moodlets, which are uh, calculated and your mood determined whether it's positive or negative. These ones are independent. So, uh, as without the job involved, they're actually quite interesting because then they give a whole bit of dynamic to what your Sims feeling. And at least, and uh, if your Sims frustrated, you know they're frustrated, and you and uh, it's not. Uh, is whereas in other ones it was kind of it kind of like okay whatever so your mood's green I don't care. And this one if they're if they don't want to do something it's it, you know by looking at them you gotta do, uh, do other stuff first. Yeah right so your your sim will be in a different mood depending on what they've been doing or 
mostly about what they've been doing recently or what's happened to them recently, and that will kind of color the way that you do things or what things you can possibly do. Like, if you're grumpy, you can vent to someone or you can ruin someone's day, or if you're happy, then you can compliment someone. Yeah. Or what else is there? If you're focused, you're really good at... You can gain skills faster. In mm. fact, happy is a good base mood to have because it complements all the... Is, is good, then it plays well into the other positive moods such as focused, inspired, romantic, and playful. But yeah. Oh, and as for the NPCs, I haven't tried... Uh, I've had good luck with the nanny. It take, they actually take care... In fact, actually, forget it. There is no nanny. If you go to work, your baby is exported to the daycare. Oh, really? Yeah. That's good, because otherwise you have to worry about child abandonment and stuff. Yeah. So basically, you don't even have to call the nanny. You just go to work, and your sin- and your kid automatically goes to daycare. Well, that's neat. So they kind of streamlined it. And that's been kind of a... Streamlining has been a trend in The Sims as it, go- it goes on. Like, in The Sims 2, there would be animations for, like, walking to your garage... Going to the car, opening the door, sitting down, and pulling the car out, and driving it away. And in Sims 3, you would, like, walk beside your car and then teleport inside the car and drive away. And in Sims 4, they don't even have cars, right? You just kind of walk to the edge of the screen, and then it loads. So they're, they're slowly taking away little details, which in some ways is a bad thing, but in other ways, like, in Sims 2, all of those little details, they take time. It might take you, like, an hour and a half to go to the car walk to the car and open it and drive away. And if someone, I don't know, if, I, if my favorite, I think, was the restaurant. You would go to a restaurant to eat something, and if your waiter was busy, you might sit there for six and a half hours waiting for the waiter to bring you something. It was really silly. So those details were really charming and nice, but they uh, because it was like a simulated open world, anything could and usually did happen. And for, and for me, I was glad to see no social worker. Because what, what would happen is my Sims' grades would all... If I had more than two kids, someone's grades would inevitably go to rock bottom and I had a few F kids. Yeah, fuck kids. <laughs> and the social worker would come along and take away because my kid got a failing grade in school. But the kid was fed, clothed, and clean and happy otherwise. But no, you can't have the kid failing, so the social worker would take away all my kids because one kid was failing. But in this one... It doesn't matter if the kid fails school. As long as every other need is met, they can fail school. Yes. All right. I'm hungry and tired and cranky. And I think we've actually covered everything. I think we have, which is a heroic deed. Is there any parting words that you'd like to say about The Sims? That was very eloquent. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> oh, that looks good on the waveform and Audacity, too. <laughs> Trying to mimic the sim sound for I'm hungry. Uh-huh. Okay, well, I, I'll, I'll act that out in full motion as soon as we hit the stop button. Okay. All right. Bianca, darling, thank you so much for coming along on the show again. It's a real pleasure to have you oh, sharing my stupid little hobby. It's <laughs> nice to be in the same room as you instead of sequestering myself and getting lonelier by the moment as you are, are several feet away. Oh, only several feet. Only. All right. Well, love you, Tits. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining. And uh, love you guys all like crazy as well. We're, we're so, so happy to have you listening to the show. Love your feedback. Love your ears. All that stuff. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com. 
by email, squarefm at demodulated.com. And on Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. We're also on iTunes and a bunch of other uh, podcasty app things that were recommended to me and I promptly forgot. So if you have any recommendations of easier ways for the podcast to come to you, a wish list or whatever, let me know and I'll sign us up. All right. Love you lots. Play The Sims, play lots of games, tell us about it, and take very good care of yourselves, and we'll talk to you next week. And thank you again, Bianca. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye.